Well, the show was great. Oh, we didn't finish didn't that recording, so... Oh, God, I live in fear of that happening. I know, I know at some point I am going to have forgotten to hit record on something. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days and not-so-good-old days of World Championship Wrestling Series by Series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and I'm joined by special guest, Mr. Kazuo Ishikawa, along with my regular cohort, Alec Pridgen. How's it going tonight, Al? Good. How's it going with you and, I guess, the other guy who's here? It's it's uh, it's going well, and, uh, yeah, how's it going, Mr. Ishikawa? M- Mr. Ishikawa? Oh, it appears the microphone we gave him doesn't work at all. Well, we'll just carry on as usual then. Oh, well. John replacement will not get a chance tonight. <laughs> He's irreplaceable anyway. Oh, no, 100%. <laughs> well, tonight we are taking a look at Spring Stampede 1994. Locked horns. Bullish tempers. Let the stampede begin. I mean, if it's a stampede, I'm pretty sure it's happening whether you let it or not. Right. Also, do, do we want to be there for a stampede? It's no point to not be there? Yeah. I, I kind of wonder if WCW mixed up stampede and rodeo. Mm-hmm. That could be. <laughs> Spring Stampede 1994 was held on April 17th, 1994, at the Rosemont Horizon in Chicago, Illinois, in front of 12,200 fans, of which 9,000 paid. The Rosemont Horizon now known with the much more boring name of the Allstate Arena, seats between 16,000 and 18,000. So I'd say if you're cutting off one side of the arena, WCW actually did pretty well here. Yeah, looking at the wiki page for it, the attendance varies around 16, 17. But yeah, I don't know what how much blockage they have versus a normal one. Right, yeah. Pay-per-view-wise, Spring Stampede 1994 earned 120,000 buys, which is fairly standard for WCW shows up until, of course, Bash at the Beach 1994 and the much-hyped arrival of Hulk Hogan. There were a couple dark matches before the show. Second, Pat Tanaka and Hayito, that being Paul Diamond in a take on his old WWF fake Asian gimmick, Kato, beat Kevin and Dave Sullivan. Oh, we missed a Dave Sullivan match? (laughs) Oh, the show was ruined. (laughs) The show was saved. (laughs) Oh, obviously, yes. But before that, Danny Bonaducci, yes, that Danny Bonaducci from the Partridge family, mm-hmm. beat Christopher Knight, yes, that Christopher Knight from the Brady Bunch in a singles match. WCW actually did a Partridge family versus the Brady Bunch match, and even stranger, they did it as a dark match. I would be surprised if the match itself were that good, but really, if you're going to do a classic TV show versus classic TV show match, you'd think you would at least put it on TV. Yeah, and other times they've done these weird promotional things, they're on pay-per-view. Like when, like, Man Cow shows up. Later in this series, by the way. <laughs> oh, is it? Oh, is it really? Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Plus, it feels like a real Clash of the Champions kind of thing. Yeah. Given that it's TBS. Yeah. yeah. I will note, uh, just for historical uh, record, this is not the only pay-per-view to have Danny Baducci and Mick Foley on it. There is a uh, one of 
TNA's lockdown shows. Oh, okay. Featured Danny Bonaduce in an opening, um, probably a dark match, but it was, you know, however, that would work on, I guess, YouTube sort of thing. And that's the same show where Mick Foley wins the world title, which is kind of weird given that it's 2009 that this happens. <laughs> but hey, good for him. Weird coincidence, by the way. Hmm. Danny Bonaduce is a black belt in Tang Soo Do, a martial art from Korea. Oh. I swear, if we tried to plan links in our episode scheduling like this, we would never manage it. No. <laughs> that is true. Saddle up, partner. Let's ride to the ring. Tonight, four titles are up for grabs as the champions try to hogtie the challengers for the showdown of their lives. After being piled-driven into the bare floor by pompous Lord Stephen Regal, Flying Brian's shot at the TV title is more than just revenge. Chicago's streets will never be the same as Max Payne and Cactus Jack play a little tune of their own on WCW's nastiest tag team, the Nasty Boys. Then the U.S. title is in danger of being captured by Japan's own Muda as he takes on stunning Steve Austin with Colonel Parker by his side. As far as Sting is concerned, no doors will be slammed in his face as he challenges ravishing Rick Rude for the international title. Will Rude be signing any autographs after the match? Sting and other contenders can only hope. Texas's own Dustin Rhodes is saddling up for his bunkhouse match with Colonel Parker's latest trophy-smashing find, Bunkhouse Buck. Sound the sirens as the boss tries to brand the monstrous Vader with his version of Law & Order. And after a supposed misunderstanding, Ricky Steamboat will go up against longtime friend Ric Flair as this world title match puts their friendship to the test. Tonight, live from Chicago's Rosemont Horizon, it's World Championship Wrestling's Spring Stampede. The opening video package goes over the matches for the evening, running down the whole card, but the intro kind of makes it sound like it's just going to cover the title matches, which makes it seem like the first four matches it mentions must all be title matches. But one of them, Cactus Jack and Max Payne versus the Nasty Boys, is not. Yes. It actually does a good job of giving a quick hint, at least, to the story going into each match. Though it actually skips one. Hmm. Poor Diamond Dallas Page and Johnny B. Bad aren't worth a mention in the opening video package, I guess. That's true, yeah. It's only strange because it goes over every single other match on the show. Yeah, yeah. If you're that close, you might as well go whole hog, right? Yeah, exactly. Or whole cow, I guess, if you're going <laughs> to the theme of the show. Yeah. I like the design of the video border. It's got this, like, wooden look with kind of a tree stump in the foreground that's been branded with the WCW Spring Stampede logo. Mm -hmm. It captured the mood of the show nicely, I thought. More in the points for trying category is the end of the video, which shows the backdrop being sawn off from the foreground, or at least that's what I realized was going on after the fourth look at it. <laughs> As all you get to symbolize it is a spray of what I guess is supposed to be tree sap and an extraordinarily crappy sound effect that I thought was supposed to be a slow-motion woo or something like that at first. Would it have been that hard to put in a chainsaw blade? <laughs> I guess it was. <laughs> mean Gene Okerlund welcomes us to the show, alongside an amazing amount of fireworks. He says fans are hanging from the rafters, and I hope not, because that's where all the fireworks are going off. <laughs> Never mind how dangerous that would be. Yes. Gene says that they've got a lot of surprises tonight, and one of them is Aaron Neville of the famous Neville Brothers, who comes out to sing the national anthem. He is dressed in leopard print and looks like he should be a pro wrestler. He does, yes. <laughs> he looks more like a pro wrestler than Bunkhouse Buck does, for sure. This is fair. <laughs> 
Yeah. He does a perfectly acceptable job. He likes to do a lot of little vocalizations and maybe does them a tad too often, but he has a nice voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. WCW even got artsy with it and showed superimposed fireworks, American flags, and the U.S. Capitol during the singing. A vast improvement over their uh, <laughs> attempts at Starcade 83. Oh, yeah. Well, they couldn't even get the camera pointed right at the flag. <laughs> yeah. It's a stationary object. You could get the camera pointed at it. Yeah. That's why you practice these things, guys. I will admit that the Capitol image, which featured a huge crowd of people lining the steps and approach to the Capitol building, has a little bit of a different feel after January 6th, 2021. Yeah, I, th- I think I felt that way, too, at the time. Yeah, I mentioned that. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's just a momentary flash before I, I reminded myself that it was before all that insanity. But it's it's there. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I can never see that. Yeah. As Neville exits, we cut to Tony Schiavone and co-host Bobby the Brain Heenan, the latter of which is wearing a red jacket and a multicolor bow tie. He looked quite a bit like a circus ringmaster. I think it as a compliment. <laughs> Shivane welcomes Heenan, and he says he can't wait to see tonight's Flair versus Steamboat match. Tony points to the crowd, who are chanting Weasel at Heenan, and he claims he can't hear anything and tells Tony to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> He's always good about not being faced by those. Yes, yeah. That's got to be difficult, because they, they get loud sometimes. They do, yeah. There's one of them where uh, Tim and also Zabisco, I believe, mm-hmm. and Zabisco's like encouraging it, and you can see him like waving it on, and he's trying hard to ignore it. That definitely sounds like Larry. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go to, Tony says, and I got really excited until he ended it with our first match. <laughs> to be fair, that first match is in the ring. It, this is true. This is true. <laughs> yes. It's implied. So, our first match is Johnny Be Bad versus Diamond Dallas Page with the Diamond Doll. Referee for this one is Randy Anderson. It's not a great time for DDP. So back in 92, he had a nice stable with Vinny Vegas, Johnny Flamingo, and the Diamond Stud. Sure hope those guys did okay without him. <laughs> that ended, unfortunately, when some of them were leaving, and he was injured. So he's since come back from injury. Now he's sort of trying to find a place for himself. Now that he's back, and obviously he's sort of on his own. But at least he's got his... Uh, his lady with him, so that helps. But as far as I can tell, there's no like story between these two. Yeah, not yet anyway. I think towards the end of the year, we start the big Johnny B. Bad versus DDP feud, right? Yeah, so there's a point where there's like eight or nine pay-per-view matches, it feels like, with the two of them. It is funny to think that um, DDP starts really hitting it big as a singles wrestler in uh, like 96, really, is where he starts becoming particularly big, mm-hmm. which is just about the same time that former Vinny Vegas, Kevin Nash, and former Diamond Stud, Scott Hall, come back to the company. That's true. But yeah. they don't end up aligned. Yeah. That is interesting, yeah. The admittedly wise decision of keeping DDP out of any version of the NWO kept them from reuniting, I suppose. Yeah. It's just funny that that never happens, and just the alignment of we're all back in the company, but in vastly different roles now, Yeah, and all being big stars again. That's just interesting. Yeah, I'm curious if if we get around to a show like you know, 98, 99, maybe, when soon we have a, like a Kevin Nash DDP match, which I'm sure there's got to be at least one at pay per view. Got to be at least a couple. Yeah. See if they reference that at all or reference their shared history. Yeah. That'd be nice. I mean, probably won't, but I'm going to look forward to it. In theory, look forward to new ways to be let down by, by people on this show. <laughs> yeah. Bad comes out wearing a red cowboy hat and vest, scarf, and a. Uh, loincloth, 
all of which are covered in red glitter, as are his twin Bad Blaster air cannons. Honestly, Bad might deserve MVP just for being able to come out in that outfit and not collapse laughing halfway down the ramp. (laughs) (laughs) He won't win the Spangly Jacket Award. He might win the Spangly Everything Else Award, though. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) He does a little dance in the ring and fires off the Bad Blasters to the crowd, so we can look forward to wrestlers getting the confetti stuck to them for the rest of the night. I was going to say, it's funny to think, too, as a face thing, that he goes out and shoots garbage onto fans. <laughs> this is true, yeah. Congratulations, here you go! Speaking of the fans, holy crap, this one guy in an orange shirt is absolutely covered in the stuff. Oh, jeez. They get a good shot of him, and he's, like, cheering, but trying not to get any of his mouth. <laughs> and not to inhale it, yeah. Paige, for his part, comes out to the sound of a motorcycle rubbing its engine, followed by a theme that sounds kind of like Alice Cooper's School's Out. So I guess even early DDP's theme plays fairly fast and loose with copyright rules. <laughs> yeah. I'll say, at this point, they haven't officially hired Jimmy Hart yet. But yeah. that, cause that was his thing, was retrofitting classic songs and making them the dis- legally distinct but not really distinct songs for, yeah. for themes, yeah. DDP wears mostly black, but with silver glitter along the lining of his vest and some ridiculous shiny silver sunglasses. And, of course, he's gnawing on a ginormous cigar. Yes, of course. It's always pretty neat to see this early page before he's fully developed his look. He has more of a standard big man appearance than the uh, that lithe look that he'll develop later on. Oh, yeah, for sure. As Paige gets in the ring, the Diamond Doll comes over to give something to Heenan. His initials in diamonds. Well, I'm sure he'll still be impartial. Oh, yeah. I tried to look for it. Do they actually ever show it on our camera? Because he talks about it. I don't think they do. I, I suspect they did not actually hand him anything but like a little bag or something. Yeah. I, I could see like them doing that with Heenan saying, we're going to hand you a bag. You can say whatever, whatever, whatever you want it to be is in there. He could totally handle that, yeah. Yeah. And obviously, this is after they've pretended to give someone a ring, too, so. <laughs> yes. At least, well, yeah, no, they definitely know what to try. The first time, they didn't give him a ring. Second, they gave him the ring of the next year, the celebration for having won it a year before. Yes, yeah, they gave, right. him, they gave him the ring a year late. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then Muda, presumably, I don't know, received his by uh, airmail to Japan or something. Yeah. <laughs> Page attacks before the bell, but Bad ducks the clothesline and rolls him up for two, then works Page's arm as Heenan, for some reason, relentlessly compliments Page. I wonder what's going on there. <laughs> It's just a fan, obviously. Page does pull the hair to get advantage and get two, but Bad muscles him over on a hammerlock for two. Heenan claims that Page is a huge star internationally, even at this point. I'm I'm pretty sure he made that up. Oh, 100%. Yeah, this whole story like where he's like formed in like Europe and Asia, and he's a big star there, but just hasn't formed here lately, which is bizarre. Yeah. Heenan continues praising Page's generosity, as Page counters further arm work with what looked like an eye poke, then gets two off a near-sideways suplex takeover, and hits a cool suplex from a kneeling position for another two. It's, it's pretty neat. He just, like, doesn't fully rise up, but grabs bad and really quickly suplexes him over. I don't think I've ever seen him do that otherwise. It was pretty neat. Yeah, even, even at this point, he's sort of experimenting with stuff, which is a nice thing. Bad gets two off a beautiful dropkick, but Page suckers Bad into the corner and sends him into the turnbuckle, then beats him up and belly-to-back suplexes him for zero as he just shows off. <laughs> Heenan calls for him to pin Bad, but then when he realizes Page isn't, he quickly shifts to praising him for showing off. <laughs> it's good, good redirection there, yeah. Tony complains, but Heenan says he's just jealous because Page didn't give him anything. <laughs> Fair enough. 
The two also argue over what to call a page gut buster, as Tony calls the move correctly, but Heenan, out of spite, insists it's a stomach buster. <laughs> I can see maybe if you're like, you know, the big buff in shape wrestler, being hit in quote unquote the gut makes it sound like, you know, you're not in shape. <laughs> so I can see even that logic, but yeah, logistically it's the same thing, yeah. Page rotating suplex for two, and the crowd really calls for Bad's comeback from a chin lock. But Page is up first after a back suplex as Heenan points out his resilience. Bad slugs Page in the gut, and Tony calls it midsection, gut, and stomach to appease Heenan, who praises him for learning his anatomy like Gordon Zully. <laughs> Bad counters Page's strikes and hits his left hook, the kiss that don't miss, but Page spills to the floor. Bad nearly catches his foot on the top rope as he dives out onto Page, but it lands fine. Yeah. Back in, a groggy Page grabs Anderson, who shoves him away just as Bad leaps off the top rope for a sunset flip for the three count and the win. Heenan claims nefariousness on the part of Randy Anderson, pointing out the shove, as we get replays of the dive outside and the top rope sunset flip. Tony actually kind of agrees with Heenan on it, not really quite being fair, but says it is a win nonetheless. Thoughts on this one? That was a pretty good match. It was a good choice for open, I thought, because you have the big, bright entrance with Bad. Um, you have a pretty easy to hate, even if you don't necessarily know the guy, well, he on DDP. Even if you've not seen him wrestle before, which I'm guessing a lot of people hadn't, he's still on the rise at this point. You see him come out on those mannerisms, you instantly know who the bad guy is. Mm-hmm. There's no question about it with him. As we've said earlier, DDP, even if he needed to take time to hone his craft on the wrestling side of things, he, like, almost immediately got the character side of things. Oh, yeah. Even, yeah, in the, the Battle Bowl show, yeah. We yeah. Acknowledge that, yeah. Mm-hmm. For his part, Bad is a good mid-card face. Mm-hmm. He has a good technical side. He has enough flashy moves and sort of his look that he can appease that sort of audience. Question with him, and obviously, never really got answered, is can he get above that level? Like, mm-hmm. Could you see Johnny Bad challenging you know, Flair for the title? I could see the match happening, but I, mean, I don't know if this version of Johnny Bad anyways feels like he would be in that spot. I feel like, yes, if it were the 80s. Mm, yeah. But at the 90s, we started getting into that era where I don't know that you expect the upper card to necessarily entirely be serious, but you didn't really see a lot of pun name gimmicks. Sure. So I feel like Mark Marrow almost certainly could have gotten to the upper card, but Johnny yeah. B. Bad, I'm not sure. Yeah, they try over certain periods of time with him to give him like more serious views, like have him be injured, or try to make it a little more serious and to be more intense. But yeah, I, I kind of agree with you on that. This is late, mid late eighties. He absolutely would be challenging Flair and like you know Graham American Bash tour. I could see that for mm-hmm. sure. Yep. As far as this match goes, I thought they had the pacing pretty well. Um, they slowed down when they need pace needed to you know read what's on page 15, you know, paragraph 3 to, <laughs> to Bad and let know what's happening. To the credit, too, I kind of like the misdirection, because you have Bad hitting a finish, but not able to get the pin. There's like a wrestling rule where if Face hits their finish but can't win, then they're going to lose. Like yeah. They get the one shot at it, basically. If they fail, that's all that happens. But then to have him win the way he did, that was kind of a nice sort of tweak of that formula a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I thought this was a perfectly good opening match. Page may not have developed his full style yet, and he's still working some things out, but he's already very good, and he pulls off a neat mix of big power moves and interesting, more momentum and rotation-driven ones. 
it was cool to see him, like you pointed out during the match, experimenting and figuring out what works. Yeah. And bad, I I totally agree. Makes for a really good fired up babyface, uh, great early card guy that can charge up the crowd really easily. Mm-hmm. And he puts his agility and speed to good use here. Aside from a bit of a close shave on his outside dive, and to be clear, it does still work. Yeah. He's in really fine form with all his various leaps and flips tonight. I thought the actual match story was pretty standard, just kind of your average strong face start, heel takes over, face fires up and wins. But there's a few surprising spots, and the general strength of the talented performers made it an above-average opener. And I will agree with you. I think they did a nice little twist to the ending there. You totally expected Bad to just be screwed out of it by something, but mm-hmm. he still uh, still comes out a winner. It's kind of interesting, too, seeing the ref involved physically in the finish kind of spot. Because mm-hmm. this ref, you expect that from Nick Patrick in WCW and Earl Hebner a lot in WWF at that time. Mm-hmm. Earl Hebner's famous, you know, kick the arms off the ropes spot he loved doing. Yes. You know, Nick Patrick doing his hilarious cartoon fall when he gets punched, you know, <laughs> yes. stuff like that. Or the or in the show we watched, they stopped the match to have him tease a fist fight between him and Jim Cornette, which was good. Which, which was awesome. It was, yeah. But so it's interesting seeing that Bob was the guy who's not normally involved in that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, and I liked how they did it. Paige could legitimately say, as Heenan says on his behalf, that that wasn't fair. Yeah. But at the same time, it's not like Anderson did anything inappropriate. Right. He was being grabbed by the wrestler, and he just said, ah, get off me, basically. Right. Yeah. And just happened that the timing worked out such that it could be said to have caused Paige's loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I could see that being used to carry the angle forward in an interesting way. Right. No, I agree with that. DDP is surprisingly absent from the next couple of shows. Like I said, he's still trying to rebuild his character and find where he fits. Mm-hmm. However, Bad does rebound from nicely. He has a U.S. title match on Night 94 Slam Show. Yes. Which will be the first plug of, of many to remind you to listen to the other episode, to be having yet. <laughs> hint, hint. Tony goes over the upcoming matches, and Heenan jokes that he's going to wear a raincoat during the upcoming Chicago street fight between the Nasty Boys and Cactus Jack and Max Payne, because you have no idea what's going to happen in that. I personally would pick SWAT armor, but a raincoat's fine, I guess. <laughs> well, you know, if there's, I guess, flying hunks of wood, you want a small piece of vinyl over your head? Yeah. I guess? Heenan notes it's an exciting pay-per-view because he's there. (laughs) Tony just manages to keep from laughing. You can see him shaking from the effort. (laughs) That's funny. He gets himself back under control and throws to Mean Gene as Heenan makes bunny ears behind his head. (laughs) (laughs) We cut to Mean Gene and Jesse Ventura, who shilled the hotline, managed by Gordon Soley and Larry Zabisco. 1-900-909-9900. Jesse says he wants to go call the hotline to talk to Soli, because Soli might not be around much longer. (laughs) Gene says that people can also get the chance to talk with Sting, as Jesse polishes Gene's bald head. You're you're bald too, man. Glass houses and all that, yeah. (laughs) 1-900-909-9900. Gene turns the discussion to Flair versus Steamboat, which he says is sure to be a classic. He and Jesse have bet a steak dinner on the outcome. To the Chicago street fight, and Jesse gets a cheap pop, mentioning the name of the city that he's in. Gene almost says our title. He says, let's get back to the ring. Very close. I guess if we ever stop the show for some reason and then resume it, that would be our show title. There you go. Our second match 
is Flyin' Brian Pillman versus Lord Stephen Regal with Sir William for Regal's WCW World Television Championship. Referee for this one is Mirror Universe Nick Patrick. <laughs> so at this point, we're in the midst of the big TV title run with Stephen Regal. His whole thing was he would constantly fight people to time them with draws, try to just escape with the title so you could find ways to have faces not lose, but also not win. Mm-hmm. It was a good way. So in this one, what they did was the pair had a match on WCW Saturday night. When it was going Pillman's way, Regal got himself disqualified, thanks to the help of Sir William, and then left. So the next week, Pillman rightly says, you know, I did beat you last week and it wasn't for the title, so I should get a rematch. Fair. Regal says, no, basically. <laughs> and it's proper, you know, snooty British way he says things. So naturally, that's followed by people in terms of WCW going, yes, rematch. <laughs> in, in less snooty British fashion, I assume. Yeah, arguably. It would have been um, Nick Bockwinkle, so it would have been on on the fence. (laughs) He would have found some extra fancy way to say it, you know, anyways. I love Pillman's silver jacket as he comes out. Looks like a space-age Air Force kind of thing, which I'd imagine is exactly the intent. Mm -hmm. And Regal's cape, of course, remains awesome. Heenan actually claims it was given to Regal by Prince Charles. Side note, um... Given their technical styles and their similar wardrobe, if you ever could have gotten a Brian Pillman versus Sinjiro Atani match, <gasps> come out and matching ja- and their, their jacket, yes. the black jacket with a jacket, it'd be great. Yes. Oh, that'd be awesome. I, l- I love that we're, we're both such fans of Shinjiro Atani, having seen precisely one match. Yeah. <laughs> it tells you how good that was. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's easy to reference. You, you have no bad matches to talk about, too. This, like, this is true. Yeah. He's, he's great in everything I've seen him in. Michael Buffer is already doing the intros tonight. I think they've got him out for every single title match. Yeah, seems like it. Appropriately, he notes that Regal is wearing royal blue. Pillman and Regal trade one counts on some quick pin attempts. Regal begs for a timeout, but Pillman slaps him hard, then drives him from the ring to get sympathy from Sir William. Pillman pursues, and they brawl outside. Regal tries to ambush Pillman getting back in, but in a very rare moment, Pillman actually manages to counter that with a rope snap. Wow. There's a lot of popping noises all of a sudden, as Heenan has accidentally stepped on his headset cord and disconnected it. <laughs> Tony, distracted, miscalls a Regal arm drag takeover as a snapmare as he's <laughs> watching Heenan try to fix his headset. <laughs> Maybe he saw Heenan snapmare his headset, and that's why. He- there you go. Heenan still somehow manages to be more audible than Kazuo Ishikawa on Collision in Korea. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. He finally gets the headset fixed and claims that he stepped on it while standing to show respect to Lord Regal. Regal works to keep Pillman in holds on the mat, and on a brief escape, catches a Pillman leapfrog and suplexes him super smooth for two. Tony brings up Pillman's time in the Hollywood Blondes, and Heenan claims that it was Steve Austin who did all the work. Tony disputes that, as when the Blondes lost the tag titles, Pillman had temporarily been replaced by... Regal. That's correct, yes. Regal tries a Canadian backbreaker, but Pillman kicks off the turnbuckle to flip himself over and roll Regal up for two. Regal suckers Pillman in for an STF and an elevated surfboard. Pillman Hurricanrana gets two. Regal roll, a forward roll with Pillman on his shoulders, which, if I'm honest, looks kind of silly, for two and nine-tenths. Yeah, I like that move if it's a setup for something else. 
It's like you do that towards the turnbuckle, then do like a moonsault or something. I think that works really well. That, then it's not as bad, yeah. But it, it being taken seriously as a, I'm going to pin you after this, it just looks goofy. I'm sure it actually hurts or would actually hurt if it were done in reality because you're rolling on top of the guy. Mm-hmm. I get the idea, but it still, it just looks so dumb. <laughs> you know you can make that move look really good, though. Vader. Yes. <laughs> if it's someone that size doing it, I think it's like the hip drop. Mm-hmm. When when you see Finley do it, and like that has no impact whatsoever. But when you see like a guy at the size of Vader do it, it's like, oh my gosh, you could be dead. Right. I that. It's, it's one of those moves that needs a really big dude to do it. Right. Or just like the cannonball dive into the corner. Mm-hmm. It could be good if you're a smaller guy and you get like a real quick speed. Like Jamie Noble used to do that. He'd do like a real quick run and dive in the corner. But then you compare it to the guy who animated that move, Otto Vons, who is this terrifyingly large, rotund Austrian man who just throws his whole body at you, literally like a bowling ball. You go, oh, I see why that's a finisher for him. Absolutely. Right, exactly. USA chant, but Regal pretzels Pillman and uses a bow and arrow hold, though Pillman's legs slip free, but he saves the hold by grabbing one. Heaton claims that Pillman is known as a quitter from his NFL days because he doesn't have a Super Bowl ring. Harsh. Yeah. It's like you quit the team before they won a ma- if they won a no won a game though. <laughs> no, yeah, it's a great conversation they've got there. It, Eden just keeps upping the bar on what you have to achieve to not be a quitter. Regal half crab, deathlock, and STF variant. Five minutes remain. Heenan asks Sir William to confirm the time remaining, and Sir William wonderfully pulls out a pocket watch to show him. Mm-hmm. I-, I love Sir William. I think he's a terrific addition to the ringside. He is. Pillman fights back, but he's exhausted. Regal rolls him up with the tights for two, then locks him in a hole to try to stall for the time limit. Four minutes, and Heaton says it's 3.59 by Sir William's watch, so, quote, they're a minute off. I'm I'm not sure that Heenan gets how minutes and seconds work. (laughs) (laughs) Regal and Pillman trade blows, but a Pillman headbutt stuns him worse than Regal. Regal puts Pillman up top, but Pillman counters with a dropkick, and both lie stunned for six. Pillman spins free of a Boston Crab, and they're both down again for five. Pillman ends a Guri, but Heenan and Tony point out that he can't follow up, and time is working against him. Pillman counters a Regal second rope dive with a dropkick, then gets a series of strikes and a back body drop. 30 seconds. Pillman runs over to Regal and tries a crossbody, but Regal catches him, and both spill outside the ring. 15 seconds and Pillman ducks Sir William's umbrella and suplexes Regal in, but time expires. Regal stumbles off as the match is ruled a time-limit draw, meaning that Regal retains. Thoughts on this one? It's a good technical match for sure. Like, if you were watching a show like this, and you didn't, like, know the technical side of wrestling, like, all the holds, mm-hmm. you'd learn a lot of them watching this. Absolutely. Here's this solo, here's this suplex, here's this. Yeah, so it's fairly good as a training aspect. The tricky thing for me with matches like this, a lot of the Regal's TV champion stuff is, I think I talked about this on a previous show with a different match. The story's kind of written backwards. Mm-hmm. The match is set up as, hey, we're going to fight to 15 minutes and it's going to be a draw. So when you start a match like that, you decide, okay, we got to have like five, six minutes of just holds on people. And then you sort of build the match around that. So you build these nice spots like the last minute or so where they keep teasing it. Or strong offense early on, or you know, escape spots. But it's not the same kind of match where there's natural ebb and flow. Mm-hmm. That said, it is still really good. Pillman makes a good 
strong baby face here, constantly trying to get out of hold and trying to you know fight his way free. Rigo, of course, is very despicable, so he's easy to both like and hate. Yeah, as a as a bad guy here, it's not a match where they just you know block on a hole for ten minutes and thing happens. There's always action, but it's just a different kind of match, which I think works as long as it's the only kind of match like that in a show. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's a mixed bag for me. I liked it a lot, but I can see someone from the outside watching and thinking they're spending a lot of time in these holds. Yes. Yeah, I, I would generally agree. I thought this was quite a fun match. Pillman and Regal complement each other really well, and Pillman has the speed and aerial moves, and Regal has the intricate ground game, but they're each good enough to work with the other one's focus and keep up when the match becomes the other's primary style. Agreed, yeah. And they both hit some really vicious strikes, so you've got a hard-fought and complex match. But like you said, I feel like it becomes fairly obvious that they're going to the time limit, mm-hmm. especially in the late stages of the match as they quite suddenly start doing some longer-lasting holds and both men down spots. Yeah. Part of it can be sold as Regal's strategy, trying to keep Pillman in holds to run out the clock, so it does still work, but it is fairly obvious. Right. I think the last match you mentioned that on was the Norton match from Collision in Korea, but with this one, I felt it a little bit more. Hmm, interesting. That one, I felt like, kind of maintained as a consistent pace the entire way through, where this one felt fast-paced, and then as they started getting towards the end, it seemed to, like, slow down, and then picked up again in the last minute. So it had a bit more of the time limit draw pacing sure. that I'm used to with this sort of match, where the other one I think felt like, okay, yeah, they're probably going there, but I think it maintained consistency a little more. No, I can see that. In any case, it still in no way spoils what's a very fun match, mm-hmm. and I really appreciated how well these two blended their styles together. Yeah. This is a show where we just did the series that followed afterwards, so I'm trying to be too spoily about it. <laughs> but it's obviously worth mentioning that Rigo would lose the TV title to Larry Zabisco, but it wouldn't happen on pay-per-view. So this is outside the realm of spoilers for our series here. Yeah. It happened on Blue on Saturday night. WCB Saturday night, that is. Then, because of the weird taping schedule, that match would actually happen before they'd have a match, a non-title match, that Zabisco would win. Which is kind of funny how that goes. Yes. And then Riga will get the title back on the Clash, so nothing would be really being interrupted on actual pay-per-view, as far as that goes. I recall that Regal and Zabisco match from Slambury 94 being really good. Mm-hmm. That was that was one of our favorite matches from the series, I think. Yeah. I know it made your uh, ultimate Slambury. I can't remember if it made mine or not. It might have. Yeah, I can't recall right now, but that was a good match. Now, the other side of this is kind of interesting. So, at this point, Brian Pillman goes off to ECW, but he's actually left the company. He's part of a talent exchange program they're doing. So he's off the next few shows, at least. But he's working at ECW TV events in their pay-per-view calendar, which is kind of intriguing. Because knowing his history later, where he famously gets them to fire him to, quote, fool the boys and, you know, fool the dirt sheets so he could go to ECW for real. (laughs) It's funny to see that they're sending him there voluntarily like a year before that happened. Yes. Sadly, it means there's not a follow-up on the next show with these two again, though. Yeah, I I could have done with more with these guys, for sure. They're very good together. Absolutely. We go backstage, where Mean Gene Okerlund is with Bunkhouse Buck and Colonel Robert Parker. (laughs) Yeah, y'all, y'all. I'll say, I'll say. 
All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, joining me right now at a very rare appearance north of the Mason-Dixon line, the greatest promoter on the face of the planet Earth, Colonel Robert Parker, before I talk to this fertilizer salesman over here. Stunning Steve Austin Amuda uh, coming up here very shortly for the you know, United you're States. You're talking line. about a fertilizer salesman here, you know. Oh, you're here is the dressing room inside of here. You know, today I feel like the greatest promoter of all time. Look over here when I'm talking to you. I'm filling the shoes of Tom Parker. And you know, ever since Elvis Presley disappeared, I found myself right in the limelight of the Parker family. And tonight is no exception because our United States heavyweight champion will be wrestling from Japan. The greatest star Japan has to offer, Great Muda. I'm sure that's going to be an exciting event. But the one I'm looking forward to shortly after that is when Buck here takes on Dusty's puppy. I'm talking about the natural Dustin Rose. You're going to take a natural whoop in the night, Rose. Am I right? Bob Cosman, what about it, Buck? You know, you're talking about I'm sweating and stinking this way for weeks. That's the way Daddy did it. That's the way Buckhouse liked to do it. My daddy told me, boy, when I was a little boy, I said, son, good things come to those who wait. My good time is near, boy. Dustin Rose, you ten cent. Drug store tablet. Let's get back to the ring. <sighs> let's get back to the ring again. They're playing with us tonight, Al. That did seem like it, yeah. Parker did a good job here, I thought, building up the excitement of his clients' matches, and I liked that he actually played up Muda in addition to his client Austin here. Helped make the match feel like it was going to be a special thing. I can see that, yeah. Even as a heel, you want your opponent, the good guy, to be strong and powerful because you think whether it's going to happen or not that you're going to win. Your client's going to win, I should say. And Buck, I thought, was fine. He's he's kind of generic and shouty, but he does a decent job of mixing in some westernisms to add a little bit of flavor. I thought both he and Parker did a good job glaring at Gene anytime he snarked about Buck, too. Yeah. <laughs> I would say it was weird to lean into the Colonel Tom Parker stuff. Yeah, that was. this is the only time I've actually heard them make that explicit on a WCW show, that he's supposed to be either fictionally related to or um, at least fictionally carrying on from Elvis's controversial manager. Yeah, it's kind of weird because he talks about carrying on from him, given that he stopped promoting Elvis, you know, 1977 when Elvis, you know, died. Yeah, so obviously, if you're taking over him, you've been waiting a while to do so. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that, that that's always obviously been the subtext with the character and the reason for the name and everything, but it was neat to hear them just, like, state it right out. Yeah, for sure. Looking at the actual Colonel Parker's wiki page, I guess he stopped making public appearances in 1994, so maybe that's why they reference it now. Maybe. It could be a quick coincidence, who knows. Yeah. I'm with you on Bunkhouse Buck to a certain extent. He basically was given, like, the one part of the promo to give, and he's sort of sped through it super fast and kind of muddles words a little bit this whole thing about like my dad told me when i was a boy he said boy and i'm like what what <laughs> <laughs> the phrasing the construction that sends is a little weird now maybe that was intentional i don't know but yeah. I, I did like his uh my good time is here mm-hmm. he, he's kind of one-dimensional at least at this point which he's early on in his run here yeah but yeah it's that terrible our third match is the nasty boys Brian Nobbs and Jerry Sags versus Cactus Jack and Max Payne in a Chicago street fight. The referees for this one are Randy Anderson and Nick Patrick. 
So earlier in the year, the tag champions, the Nasty Boys, were challenged by the duo of Jack and Payne, which I'm told is a good drink, by the way. <laughs> the match ended, as you might expect, in a DQ for the heels, so they're going to escape with their titles and set up a future rematch. And just to be clear, because it could be either in this case, the heels in this case are... The Nasty Boys. Okay. <laughs> yeah. They used a weapon to get disqualified and when they were being challenged for the titles. You know their heels because they tried to get away with it. Yes. But yeah, this is a, a weird time where Max Payne is technically a good guy. Despite the fact his name being Max Payne. <laughs> with two X's, by the way. Just in case you didn't think it was 90s enough to be called Max Payne. <laughs> Naturally, the story is the heels have to get DQ to keep their titles. So we get a rematch of the next show with no DQ. So, of course, it's not for the titles. What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that's just a story. It's like they get disqualified to keep the titles, and then we got faces again. No, it's no DQ. But also not non-title, too. This is going to be fair to you guys, you know. That, that's strange. Yeah. It's like they almost structured the full story and then gave up. Admittedly, if someone was going to intelligently construct a match contract, I don't think it would be Cactus Jack or Max Payne, but... yeah. Maybe they use the same agent that did the 96 uh, Starcade show. Yes. The non-title title match with Roddy Piper. Yes. <laughs> yeah, should I include the thing where you get, get to win the title? Ah, I guess if you have time, but it's not that important. Knobs <laughs> <laughs> screams about nastiness all the way to the ring. Knobs and Sags are carrying their tag titles, but Tony says, as you pointed out, the titles are not on the line. Sags carries a pipe, and Nobbs carries a wooden pole or something. I, I think Tony does eventually identify it as a pool cue. Yeah, I think it's like the bottom half of a pool cue or something. Tony says if the competitors come over towards the commentary desk, he'll leave it to Heenan, but Heenan says he'll already be gone. <laughs> <laughs> There'll be a Heenan-shaped smoke cloud there at the chair. <laughs> yes, presumably. Or he'd jump up in the air and run with like his feet, but not go anywhere like we do. <laughs> I can picture him doing that. Right? It's so natural. We get an awesome Old West Wanted poster style match graphic. I love it. Oh, yeah. It even like slowly peels off the screen like it's falling off the wall. <laughs> Somebody clearly had a lot of fun with that. Oh, yeah. Jack wears a Super Dad t-shirt, and Payne has some album cover or something. I feel like it's a Guns N' Roses thing with all the you know roses on it. Maybe. But then the back is typically for himself as the Max Payne fashion victim thing on it, so I'm, yeah. I'm a little confused myself. Sign in the crowd, dot matrix even. Mm. Ears to ya, Cactus Jack. <laughs> for those not in the know, Jack legitimately lost an ear in a match against Vader. Yes. The Nasty Boys attack on the elevated ramp before Jack and Payne even get to the ring. Nobs and Jack brawl, and Payne spinebuster sags in the ring. Nobs jumps off the second rope, but Jack punches him, and he drops what Tony finally identifies as probably the remains of a pool cue. So Jack batters him with it, and he loses an elbow pad. Cactus clothesline over the ropes, and Jack lands on the apron while Nobs hits the floor. Everyone brawls outside, and Sags hits Payne with a chair. Well, the seat is unfolded, so it hits like a pickaxe. Mm. That must have hurt like hell. Yeah, right? Ow. Barricade shots, choking, and more pool cue and chair shots. Heenan jokes that Jack should team up with Aaron Neville, who's at ringside, as a singer, but we miss why. I'm guessing Jack might have gotten hit in the balls. Oh. But they, they didn't catch it on camera, but Heenan jokes about it. <laughs> oh, okay. 
Payne and Nobbs end up by a souvenir stand where Nobbs batters Payne with a trash can and table as WCW decides to go split screen so it's impossible to watch. (laughs) Yes. It does have a nice branded wood border, though. It's true. It does. I can't follow this, Heenan says. Me neither. (laughs) Yeah. Another terrifically unsafe Sags chair shot, Mm. and Jack is nice enough to fold the chair before returning fire. Nobbs gets two on Payne off some punches. Back to full screen, and Payne drops Nobbs through a souvenir table and chokes him with a t-shirt for two, just as Tony was saying that no one was trying pins. Yeah. In fairness, he probably couldn't see Nobbs' attempt any more than I could during split screen. Yeah. Nobbs uses dangerous-looking table debris against Payne, and we go back to split screen as Sags and Nobbs double-team Payne for two. Both shots literally showed the exact same thing as Sags beats Jack with a table. <laughs> That's true, yes. Like, what's the point? <laughs> yeah, like, he, he wandered in too far as the split screen merged together. Yeah. But they didn't do a cool, like, artistic thing where they actually did merge back together. Yeah, exactly. What was it? Um, Toe Jam and Earl, I think, would do that. Oh, well, that sounds right, yeah. The Genesis game, I think. <laughs> Sags and Jack to the ramp as Nobbs pins Payne for two, but Payne flings Nobbs through the souvenir stand backdrop. Jack suplexes the table onto Sags, but Nobbs saves with a snow shovel, of all things. Payne and Nobbs fight as Sags sets Jack for a pile driver onto the table, but it snaps in half beneath them, and they fall hard to the ramp. Mm-hmm. Thank God Jack was not actually lifted yet. That could have killed him. Yes, absolutely. Nobbs pins Payne for zero as both refs are helping clear the table. <laughs> yes. And Sags shoves Jack off the ramp to the floor, where he lands hard. Sags smacks him with the snow shovel for the three count and the win. Payne, who somehow didn't notice that his buddy was in trouble despite clearly looking right at him multiple times during that whole bit, was also going for a pin, but Jack's pin has already been counted, so it doesn't count. Weirdly, almost all of that ending bit was filmed with Payne and Nobbs in the foreground. It's too close to fully see what they were doing and Jack and Sags in the background, often hidden by pain or by knobs. Hey, director, here's a tip. When someone stands on a table or shoves someone off a ramp, cut to a camera close to that. <laughs> if it's a show where there's like only the one camera, you can go, well, maybe the camera guy was literally blocked by those two standing on the ramp, but yeah, they definitely have a hard camera, for one thing. Yes, they had multiple cameramen. Yes. As they demonstrated moments before with their stupid split screen. That's true, yes. Payne stumbles to his feet, but Sag sprints at him and clocks him with a chunk of table. We get shots of Jack and Payne slowly recovering and never even see the match winners again. Yep. Tony says that he's surprised that Jack is moving, and Heenan says he's not surprised. This is probably the best time Jack has ever had. <laughs> Thoughts on this one? Uh, see, I took very detailed notes for this, Bob. Did you? My notes are weapon shots, walking. <laughs> Federal I felt like summarizing. Even aside from the split-screen stuff, this kind of match doesn't really work for me because it's just them hitting each other with stuff. Other than the few flashes of Mick Foley doing his good cactus clothesline, especially because he managed to sit on the apron instead of going all the way out with them, which has actually looked really cool, there's just not enough excitement here. This kind of match could work with a couple teams. Like, if you did this kind of match, not necessarily so hardcore, but, like, doing the false kind of aspect... With, like, four luchadors, for instance. Mm-hmm. You know, they're diving off of this, they're flying into that. That kind of thing can work for me, but this, it's just these guys lumbering around each other, 
sometimes with really obviously gimmick kind of things like suplexing the table onto him, which is <laughs> I think I think Foley does, it looks weird. Mm-hmm. But then a lot of times it's the Nasty Boys being overly stiff. Yeah. With poor Max Payne here. Which would be a point of attention with him, by the way, and and him leaving the company. I, I would imagine so, yeah. He complained very vocally, apparently, about how they're often overly stiff and brutal to him during matches. So much of this is just them hitting each other and falling around. That weird bit with Payne, where he decides he's going to body slam whichever nasty boy is with at that point. I lost track, honestly. But instead of like grabbing him and doing a quick slam, he like carries him around for like what feels like a minute. He like, passes by one table and goes, no, no, I want to match the table. I want this other table over here. So I'm going to walk awkwardly around it. Yeah. Which is the kind of thing you can do in like the wrestling games, which <laughs> still looks fake there, obviously, but just sort of catch like, a guy and walk around to you where you want him there. I've never seen an actual match do that before until this one. Yeah. And the finish. Not even getting, the, as you said, about how it's shot so poorly. <sighs> I mean, the pile driver thing goes wrong. Which is funny, if you read any, like, match summary for this, like, on Wiki or people, like, reviewing it, they describe the pile dart through a table, and, like, uh, did you watch the match? Yeah, it doesn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> it does not happen. <laughs> yeah. It's not even, like, an attempted pile They're like, he pile dart fully through a table. I'm like, uh, no, he does not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It feels like Sags got annoyed and just shoved him off the apron like that. And because Foley is just, you know, insane at this point. I don't know, maybe this is his idea, but it felt like a kind of vindictive thing to do. <laughs> he's mad at the table for breaking, so he's just going to shove his, I assume, his friend four feet down onto his back and head onto a concrete floor, and then hit him with a shovel anyways, because, you know, that shovel wasn't enough. Yeah. Ugly finish on all accounts. <laughs> I'm going to partially disagree with you. Okay. I totally agree that the camera work and the stupid split screen are in the way frequently in this match Mm -hmm. but otherwise i actually thought this was a wild and rather entertaining brawl Hmm. Um, i thought jack was in his element engaging in a brutal fight the nasties had their working boots on to give as good as they got and Payne was serving nicely as a big dude that could throw in an occasional decent power move and throw people around they made pretty good use of the ringside area and the souvenir stand set they came up with some clever spots and made a bit of a story to this of a divided, even fight that swung mostly based on the Nasties having better teamwork. Hmm. So it actually had a little bit more of a story to it than a lot of hardcore matches, which I think is is what's helping me with it. Okay. I do agree, though, that the match got pretty uncomfortable at times. There's some notably unsafe weapon strikes by the Nasties, particularly Sags' unfolded chair shots, which I have never seen someone else do, and I hope I never see someone else do again. Yeah. An ill-advised late-match table stunt that thankfully didn't get someone killed when it went wrong, and some very hard falls by Jack in particular. Yeah. It was a good hardcore match, I thought, but it could have dialed things back to a safer level and still been entertaining. Mm -hmm. It definitely helped me knowing that all four guys went on to have other matches. Yeah. Jack would, of course, go on to have better luck at Slamboree when he would team up with Kevin Sullivan against the same team. (laughs) So the lesson, I guess, is... Find a druid and you'll do better. <laughs> alleged. Oh, I'm sorry. Alleged druid. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. I need the the NBC, the more you know, rainbow thing to flash by when I say that. <laughs> As a bonus, he was also replacing Dave Sullivan in that match, so it's good for us. Yes. Anyone had to watch that match. As mentioned, Max Payne is not long for the company. As that he complained about the NASA working stiff, and he tried to do other stuff. 
He would then go to WBF where it become Man Mountain Rock. Definitely one of those so bad it's good names. Oh yeah. Especially when you see him when he's got the WBF safe guitar. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's it's weird. He doesn't like look great in either gimmick, but he, I think he looks better with Man Mountain Rock than he does with a scraggly look he has here, where it's his random rock band shirt and weird sweatpants kind of thing with like a weird emblem on him. It's at least kind of a connected look for the latter one, yeah. Yeah. Payne, by the way, I believe legitimate guitarist, right? Yes. One of the Slamborees, he does the guitar the intro. We cut back to Jesse Ventura, who is with Johnny B. Bad, who has put the sparkly cowboy duds back on. Of course. Because why wouldn't you? Yeah. All right, everybody, Jesse the Body Ventura here with a successful Johnny B. Bad. You had the kiss that couldn't miss tonight, Johnny, but I know you're looking to the future. We all know Slamboree's about a month away down the road, and it's going to come from the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I'll tell you, Jesse, what a reception tonight. The bad man is on a roll. It was no surprise that I defeated Diamond Dallas Page. He's a good wrestler, but I'm a bad man. And I'm here to tell you, Jesse, and I'm here to tell the whole world that I want a shot at the winner of the Muda Stunning Steve Austin match. The only thing I'm lacking right now, Jesse, is that gold around my pretty waist. Wait, let me, let me understand this now. You're issuing a challenge right here, right now, for the winner of Muda and Stunning Steve and the U.S. Heavyweight title? Exactly, Jesse, because I'm going to shock the world. I'm going to prove to everybody that I'm the greatest wrestler of all times. All right, and on that note, let's go to ringside and Michael Buffer. Perfectly acceptable promo by Bad here, and I liked that he, again, praised his opponent, uh, even while declaring victory. Yeah. I also really liked him immediately doing some work to set up what would come next for him. And as as I believe we discussed earlier, we covered the match that he sets up on our previous series, Slamboree. Correct. It was quite a good match, as I recall. Uh, yeah, I believe that was a good one, yeah. He states what he wants quite clearly, and then Jesse Ventura is like, let me make sure I understand. I'm like, how do you not understand? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, he clearly challenged the winner of that match. It's, yeah, yeah. It's not a hard concept, man. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I thought he's good. He had um, good energy here. Mm-hmm. For a short segment setting up a future show, I thought it worked. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Our fourth match is The Great Muda versus Stunning Steve Austin with Colonel Robert Parker for Austin's WCW United States Heavyweight Championship. The referee for this one is Nick Patrick. Incidentally, I looked it up. So Muda's last appearance for WCW was Starcade 1992. Before the oh, show. okay. He's been gone for more than a year at this point. That's, he, he, yeah, he came in for that one. They gave him Battle Bowl, and he was like, oh, crap, I'm not coming back to you guys for a while. <laughs> Maybe they finally agreed to give him his ring from, from Maybe, winning Battle yeah. Bowl, and I showed up. Lure, lured him back by promising him the ring. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We get that cool wanted poster-style match graphic again. It's really nice. Mm-hmm. I like when they do more with a show's gimmick like this bringing it in with the match graphics and some of the other design elements. They don't do as much with this one as I think they will at, I forget if it's 97 or 98. I recall there being one where there's a stagecoach, actually. Ooh, yeah. I think it's 97. I could be wrong. Might be 98. But they still do quite a bit on this show to kind of, like, build up the theme, which I, I enjoyed. Yeah. You know, they should have been funny is made, like, a little cartoon version of the wrestlers on screen, have them, like, you know, posing like they're going to fight and then have a stampede chase them off. Buffer does the ring intros again and says that the match is sanctioned by the WCW. 
Sigh. <laughs> you always got to bring that up, don't you? I, I do. I do. Yeah, okay. Because I know how much you love it. That's true. I, I totally love it, clearly. Muda comes out in an awesome sparkly red G and mask. Was there a sale on red glitter leading up to this? <laughs> Austin at least went with gold glitter on his vest. It's it's funny how Austin's kind of close to his eventual Stone Cold look here, but just more glitzy. Yeah, that's true. He's got short-styled hair rather than bald, but he does have facial hair, and he wears a mostly black vest. It's just also gold and glittery. Yeah, not wearing a Saved by the Belt tights. Yes. He even does a uh, almost Stone Cold-style strut and head shake on the way to the ring, but the smile's more cocky heel. Yeah. It's like he's he's drifting that way, but not quite there. Yeah. There's a brief period where they ship a lot of that away from him, and they make him the ringmaster. But then he, then they course-correct, thankfully, in wrestling history. Never the same. Yeah. An audience member has a KFC sign to make fun of the colonel, of course. Naturally. Tony and Heenan discuss Austin developing a new hold. An inside toehold he calls Hollywood and Vine. Incidentally, Hollywood and Vine was an actual tag team in GLOW. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Yeah. A Muda sign in the crowd is quite well drawn. Muda gets Austin dead center of the ring with an abdominal stretch, but he slips a hand free, so Muda elbows him hard. Meanwhile, Parker is going, Hyaw, hyaw, hyaw. <laughs> Muda roll up for two, headlock for one, and Patrick catches Austin trying to use the hair. Muda nicely resists an Austin back suplex to take Austin down again, but a second try gets two for Austin. Muda counters a suplex with a brain buster and hits the power drive elbow with typically awesome acceleration mm -hmm. and works around a side headlock for another one. Heenan claims Neville was lip syncing earlier and he was the actual singer. <laughs> <laughs> Austin catches Muda with a head scissors, but he's clearly frustrated. And Heenan says that Muda has been thinking several moves ahead, so Austin should use the hair and trunks. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. Muda slips free, and Austin scrambles out and confesses to Parker, he's got me completely flustered. It's a nice character moment there. Mm -hmm. Austin uses the tights for two, as Tony points out that Neville has now come to sit by Heenan, so Heenan now says that Neville's a great singer and praises his earlier performance. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta love Bobby Heenan. Oh, right? Yeah. Muda gets a hammerlock and levers Austin for two. Austin whips Muda to the ropes, and Parker grabs his leg, so Austin hits a really nice jumping knee strike from behind, and Muda falls outside. You know, with a jumping knee strike, they, they often kind of, like, jump at them, but kind of gently connect and then push. Right. Where with this one, I'm sure he was still effectively doing that, but he made it look snappier, like an actual impact. Yeah, yeah. I really like that. When I said when we were watching, it reminded me a lot of Randy Savage would do that. Right. I always liked his, too, because he had a good speed, and it could have been a, t a combination of his timing and the, obviously, I take the moves timing, but it always looked impactful to me. Anyways. Right. Patrick lectures Austin, and Parker chokes Muda. He then claims that he was just helping Muda clean up drool with his kerchief. Oh, of course. Austin beats Muda up outside. Back in, an Austin knee drop, but he takes his time and only gets two. Muda's hair is wild now, but Austin's is absolutely pristine. Yes. What does he use on that stuff? Rubber cement? <laughs> right? Abdominal stretch, and Austin uses the ropes as Heenan nicely discusses the move's impact on your spine and breathing, and offers to demonstrate on Tony. <laughs> Tony intelligently declines. 
Patrick finally catches Austin, but Muda still takes a few moments to counter out. I liked that. It looked legit. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're used to them kicking the hand off the ropes or whatever, and the guy immediately flipping the uh, guy doing the hold over. Yeah. But Muda, like, still needed to struggle for a little bit, so that was nice. Yeah, I can see that. Builds it up a bit. Heenan is shocked that the crowd is not cheering for Austin, but Tony says that they like fair play. Chicago? Heenan says. Yeah. And accuses every single Chicago sports team of cheating. <laughs> yeah. Austin dodges a Muda dropkick and hits a second rope elbow from between the corners for three two-counts. Choking by Austin and Parker, but Muda blocks a turnbuckle ramp and hits a spin kick, suplex, and dropkick, but Austin dodges a second one and tries for Hollywood and Vine, but can't quite get it locked in, so Muda rolls free. Heenan jokes that Austin made it to Sunset and Vine and Hollywood was up the street a bit. <laughs> Muda hits Austin's own stun gun, and even Muda looks surprised at that. <laughs> the crowd cheers huge. Cartwheel elbow and top rope hurricane run by Muda, but Parker climbs to the apron, so Muda spin kicks him, but Austin charges from behind, so Muda dumps him over the top rope, getting disqualified. Austin wins by DQ. The fans are not happy with that decision, but Muda cheers them up with a dive over the ropes onto Austin and Parker. <laughs> Parker and Austin don't quite agree on the timing for the fall, so Austin goes down earlier than Parker, and Muda nearly splats his face on the mats outside. Oh, yeah, I remember that. It was, yeah. We've got, like, Parker still standing, and he's supporting Muda's legs, mm. so Muda's, like, face goes rapidly toward the ground. Fortunately, he catches himself. Yeah. Big boos for Austin, who walks off supported by Parker with a triumphant smile, declaring himself the greatest U.S. champ of all time. Heenan is amazed by the top rope Rana that Muda did on the replay of the finish. Thoughts on this one? This is interesting because if you look at it on paper, even not necessarily you are saying the time frame, you know, this isn't 1997 Stone Cold Steve Austin, obviously it's stunning Steve Austin. You expect a whole lot from this match. Mm -hmm. I think in general, I think it's a good match. Pacing's a little off sometimes. It's a kind of running theme through the show to a certain degree. Like the slower at certain parts to maybe in this case it's to help sort of call the match these guys haven't wrestled a bunch of times like other people on the show have so you're sort of building the match in the ring like i know austin would famously do mm -hmm. he'd have the layout of the match but he wouldn't it's not ddp or uh, Randy savage where they'd have right the binder he was the guys that liked calling matches in the ring so i can kind of see it from that point of view but yeah it's a little slow at times but Muda, I think, does a good job when he gets his highlights, kind of like with Pillman earlier in the show. Mm -hmm. When he gets his highlights, it works. The only problem with this one, it seems like the crowd's not as into the match as a whole as you might think it would be. Hmm. I feel like it's maybe just a lack of familiarity with Great Muda, perhaps. I'm honestly going to disagree with you. I felt that the crowd was pretty hot for this. Oh, okay. I mean, there's, there's a couple points that where I've obviously specifically noted it, but I felt like they were pretty into this for much of the match. Oh, for me, there's definitely points where they pop. Like I said, the ending parts there, for sure they do. I could be wrong, but if I didn't feel the same way about that one, personally. Okay. The big problem is just they build this finish, and then it just, the match just stops, because of this stupid DQ finish. Yeah. It would work if it was Austin intentionally being heelish to try and get himself disqualified, but it really is Muda just, like, sort of shrugging and tossing over shoulder, and then being not too annoyed, really, when he doesn't get to win the title. Obviously, he dives in them, but he doesn't, like, 
act all frustrated about it. Yeah. It's kind of, this is kind of weird the way that's done. It's like, I could win, but eh, I don't feel like it. <laughs> I thought this was a really fun match, and it had a good story, I thought. Mm-hmm. Muda, as Heenan points out, just seems to be ahead of Austin in predicting his every move for most of the match, dominating. But rather than making Austin look bad, it just gives him a lot of room for character work. I love the frustration that he showed through the whole thing, and the fact that he even goes out and just straight up admits it to Parker. Oh yeah, I thought his character really worked well in this, for sure, yeah. I thought he took what could have been a one-sided match and shifted the focus to his character work. And of course, he ultimately manages to cheat his way into a bit of an advantage towards the end. There are a few minor flubs. Notably, I'm fairly sure that Hollywood and Vine was supposed to actually get locked on for a little, but they just didn't get it right. Mm Mm-hmm. But overall, I thought these two told a really good, focused story that was easy to follow and enjoy. I do very much agree that the ending is a letdown. Right. I'll, I'll get into this a little later, but the, the whole, like, oh, I accidentally threw you over the top rope, therefore I'm DQ'd thing is obviously a stupid rule. <laughs> right. And is not used with any kind of consistency in all of WCW. Correct. I still thought that the match leading up to that point was quite good. Yeah. I wasn't as old as, um, as you were, but no, I'm, I'm not definitely think it's a bad match for sure. Yeah, yeah. This would be Muda's last U.S. wrestling match for about a year. Oh, okay. Uh, he would appear on WWE pay-per-view earlier in 95, being shown sitting in a crowd on a show, but he wouldn't actually perform on it. He wouldn't appear again until Slambury 95, which of course is a match we already covered. He'd return as the IWGP champion. Right, right, yeah. And just to connect things a bit back, that title he has is the one he won off Shina Hashimoto, which technically happened after the Collision Career pay-per-view happened. It happened before it aired in America. Right, right. It happened like less than a week after the show takes place live, but it's a good month and a half or two before they actually run it in the U.S. <laughs> and obviously we cover what Austin's doing already. We cut backstage where Jesse is with Dustin Rhodes. Jesse, the body Ventura, back here in the dressing room. I'll be talking to Dustin Rhodes in just a moment. What a matchup we just saw with stunning Steve Austin and the great Muda for that U.S. heavyweight title. See, Jesse agrees with me. Yeah, fair enough. Now it's time to move on to the future. And the future is just a couple of matches away, Dustin Rhodes. It's going to be you and Bunkhouse Buck in a Bunkhouse matchup now. To me, that means it's just a street fight. It ain't wrestling. And we all know, Dustin Rhodes, it was just a couple of weeks ago, Bunkhouse Buck made a trophy presentation to you, literally. I don't need to see this. I've watched this over and over, and I can remember it in my head like it was yesterday. It hurt real bad, and I'm getting out of bed a lot harder now these days. But I'm going to tell you what, Bunkhouse Buck, that's what you're best at, is jumping people from behind. You and that good-for-nothing Colonel Parker. Well, let me just give you a little bit of advice. Tonight, just a few matches away, it's you and me. There's a big difference in the T in Tennessee and the T in Texas. And the T in Texas, the natural Dustin Rhodes, 260 pounds, is going to get your possum raccoon butt out of that tree. And I'm going to get you down there and I'm going to kick your tail like it ain't never been kicked today. What? Well, there you got it. Dustin Rhodes looks ready. Let's go to Michael Buffer up at ringside because coming up next... Ravishing and Rick Rude and the Stinger. Stay well, with us, everybody. It's just going to get better. <laughs> <laughs> I assume this is actually going to be a match about Rhodes liking to drink Texas tea while Buck prefers Tennessee tea and they'll battle it out in a drinking contest. 
Yeah, I can't see how that would happen. <laughs> I thought this was a perfectly good promo by Rhodes. He did a good job kind of varying his tone from quietly resentful of seeing the footage of Buck's attack on him to loud and angry proclaiming what he was going to do. It's a basic shift, but it's more than what you get in some promos, and seeing Dustin fired up was pretty good. Yeah, seeing him actually react to it is nice. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they just they either come in angry or they stick to their I am the good babyface character. So it's like, it's like you know, going back to the other shows we've covered, when, you know, we get to see annoyed, sarcastic Sting at Starcade 95, for instance. Right, yeah. It feels different, because he's not like, boy, I love the fan, gee, howdy. One of our favorite Sting moments, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, go ahead and ask. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was great. Yeah. Seeing, seeing them actually react to the storyline and, and think about, how would I feel if this legitimately was happening? Right. You know, it is nice. Yeah. The thing that's kind of funny for me is... This is all about, like, Texas versus Tennessee. And I'm like, but you guys are in Chicago, you were like, right? <laughs> This is true. There's so much of that. Like, I, I get you're playing for audio audiences, but it's, it feels like this, like, was this show originally going to be, be in one of those states and then it up in Illinois? I don't yeah, know. It, it is weird that the first Spring Stampede show is in Illinois. Yeah. Like, I, I wouldn't have been surprised if, like, down the line they ended up spreading out. But you really would expect the first Spring Stampede to be in, you know, a western state. Yeah, exactly. You either need to be way more south or way more north, because you can be in Canada True, for yeah. Canadian Stampede, which I believe was a show that they end up suing over the name rights over later. <laughs> I think Chavani jokes that a few times they actually won a case in court, but I don't know how that actually ended. I also like that Jesse Ventura apparently shares uh, Vern Gagne and Luth as his opinion of hardcore wrestling. Yes. It says, just a fight, it's not wrestling. <laughs> yes. That's true. And of course, WCW can't quite get through the segment without an error, so they cut in Michael Buffer's ring announcing at the end there before Jesse's actually done throwing to it. <laughs> yeah. Kind of makes me want to thunder replace the orchestra playing you off your speech too long bit with Michael Buffer just starts announcing a match. <laughs> Someone's going on and about, I want to thank my wife and my kid, and it's like, ladies and gentlemen, the next match. Like, okay, I'm going. <laughs> It'd work. Our fifth match is Sting versus Ravishing Rick Rude for Rude's WCW International World Heavyweight Championship. We're in that era again. Oh, yeah. Referee for this one is Randy Anderson. So on an earlier show, they had a six-man cage match. Allowing two teams, obviously. We had Sting on one side, Rude on the other. In the aftermath of the match, Rude attacked Sting, doing what's now a classic spot, which is closing the cage door on someone's head. Right. That really sets off the personal feud between Rude and Sting. Much like his cohort, Stephen Regal, he refuses to give Sting a title match. And I guess he's just kind of allowed to do that, which is interesting in his case. Uh, so what Sting would do, is they, they reference in the intro video package, but don't explain, is Sting gets a woman to be near ringside after one of Root's matches and get him to, quote, sign an autograph. But it's actually the match contract for this. Devious Sting. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Ba- ba- babyface Sting uses a fan to get a title match for himself. That really sounds like you picture that ultimately it comes out that Sting like consulted with Ric Flair, since Flair's in kind of his semi-good guy mode at the yeah. point. <laughs> He'd be like, hey, Flair, if you know, if I was world champion, or excuse me, world international champion, because <laughs> that's a thing, 
and you know you want a title shot against me, but I wouldn't give it to you. How would you do it? Oh well, I'd use Plan Forty Three, where I <laughs> yes. I get a fake person to sign an autograph. I, I assume that he first suggested dressing up uh, in an ill-fitting mask and coming out in the spaceship, but Sting said no. Yeah, <laughs> then moved on to the next one. <laughs> yeah, first plan was that. Second plan was dress like a woman and attack them behind because that's a classic flare move as well. Yes. Sting was like, I want one that maintains my dignity, Rick. And Rick was like, oh, that, that cuts out like a hundred of mine, but sure. <laughs> yeah, the guy with the neon scorpion on his leg needs his dignity. Okay. <laughs> Buffer does the ring intros and calls it the WCW again. Yay. Sting has a hilarious wide-eyed expression on the wanted poster. It's like they took his picture a second too early. <laughs> Sting comes out in a awesome black and silver glittery jacket and red and white face paint. Mm-hmm. That jacket is just super sparkly. I think they did the lights really well tonight to catch all the shine on the entrance gear. Oh, for sure, yeah. It's like you can see like beams of light shining off that thing. Mm-hmm. A Sting sign in the crowd is pretty good, but it makes his expression look kind of evil, and one of his hands looks like it's on backwards. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very genetic disorder, Bob. You should make fun of people that have that. <laughs> Sting takes off his coat and appears to have some of its glitter on his chest. This sweated into him, probably. Rude's out next, in a blue and silver sparkly robe. Buffer's intro references the multicolored artwork on Rude's tights. I haven't heard that called out before in an introduction. Yeah. It is excellent art of Rude and Sting. I I really hope someone has all of those ring tights that he wore. Yeah, much like the Jimmy Hart jackets, the Rick Rude tights are works of art, yeah. Such a great collection. They eventually start getting RVD's uh, singlets. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Root's intro is interrupted by Harley Race, wearing a jacket that's just about as bright a red as Heenan's. Mm-hmm. Race challenges the winner of Root versus Sting on behalf of Vader, then tries to deck Sting. But Sting blocks the punch, decks him, and flings him to the other turnbuckle, where he basically does the flare flip up and over to the floor. He does, yeah. It's pretty impressive. But you can think he's been actively retired from as a wrestler for like three or four years now at this point, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Still has it. Oh, yeah. Rude attacks while Sting is distracted, but Sting fights back and clotheslines him out over the ropes. Rude hadn't even gotten his robe off yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is where I have to say, I've never gotten why that spot's okay, but the back body dropout is a disqualification. Mm. It's, it's, it feels backwards, right? Yeah, I mean... Because the clothesline is clearly intentional. Like, you know that you're sending him out over the ropes when you do the clothesline. Right. Where the back body drop feels like it's always done as an instinctive reaction. Mm-hmm. So if one's going to draw a DQ, it should be the clothesline. I think the idea is it's supposed to be an even less controlled thing when you just huck them over the top rope. I'm not saying it actually is, but I think that's the logic they're going for. Yeah. Like, you're actively trying to hurt somebody you know, more than you're supposed to in a wrestling match. With that kind of move, like it's quote-unquote too dangerous. I guess. It just feels like it should be based on intention, and the back body drop is almost always portrayed as just like, oop, I accidentally did it. Yeah. I can almost see maybe like when they first came up with this silly DQ rule that included the clothesline, but guys could just not stop doing it, and the rest had to go, (laughs) ah, okay, clotheslines are okay. (laughs) Because you see it, we see how often it happens in matches, like just on the show, for instance. How it's, much, it's frequent, yeah. I mean, we get it back in the tag match, the Max Payne Cactus Jack Nasty Boys one. Mm-hmm. We got the Cactus clothesline to the outside, then we got Cactus himself being clotheslined back to the inside. Yes. Just in that one match, so yeah. My guess is that guys just couldn't stop doing clotheslines, they made an exemption without ever 
clarifying it and explaining it in a logical fashion. Right. Sting suplexes Rude on the mats outside. Back in, Rude finally takes his robe off as Heenan makes excuses for Harley Race. Commissioner Nick Bockwinkle sits down at the commentary table, and Heenan warns Tony not to talk to him because he'll never shut up. <laughs> Sting belly-to-back suplex for two. Back rake! Sting works a front face lock, interrupting only for some tremendous jumping elbow drops for one. Mm-hmm. As usual, Sting has amazing vertical leap. Rude drops Sting crotch first on the ropes, beats him up outside, then rolls him in. Rude belly-to-back suplex for two, and he mocks Sting and flexes to huge boos. Rude works a seated rear chin lock that's almost a camel clutch. Yeah. Heenan says that Rude won't back off, unlike Richard Simmons. What? Yeah, I don't... I don't get that at all. I, I have no comprehension of what that means. I don't know. It might have made more sense in WBF before Rude got his haircut. Because I could see his more poofy hair looking maybe closer to Rich Simmons thing. But at this point, he's been short haired for at least the last three years. The only other thing I could think of was if he accidentally confused Richard Simmons and Ron Simmons. But I don't think Ron Simmons is even in WCW at this point. So. No. <laughs> I just... Someone said, you gotta make a cultural reference somewhere, and just make it work. And they tried. Rude drops an elbow for two, and back to the clutch. Heenan says, it's hard to get up from this hold. All you can do is scoot backwards, forwards, or get up. Huh? So you have multiple. So you can basically do anything? <laughs> you have three last chances. Sting lifts Rude on his shoulders, but Rude rolls forward for one, but Sting reverses for two. The fans were on their feet for that. Mm-hmm. Rude grabs a sleeper, but breaks the hold before the third arm check and shoves Anderson. Rude slugs away, and Heenan calls Sting a human piñata. What kind of candy would he hold, Al? Oh, given his coloring, maybe Smarties? That, that, that seems, seems fair. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sting absorbs Rude's strikes and asks for more, giving an awesome, wild-eyed look. Sting flexes, and Rude runs the hell away, but Sting catches him by the tights. <laughs> With Rude's butt part exposed, Sting beats him up as Heenan makes full moon jokes. Yeah. Back body drop, and Rude does a full front flip and nearly lands on his feet, but collapses. Tony says he could have broken a leg, and he's right. That looked dangerous. Yeah. Stinger call draws massive cheers. Anderson gets caught behind Rude in the corner, and Sting, unaware, lands a stinger splash on both. Scorpion deathlock, but Anderson is out. Harley Race and Vader run down, so Sting breaks the hold and fights both of them off. Race gets hit, reels, and clearly expects to get hit again, but Sting is prepping for a big punch to knock out Vader, so Race just kind of falls out of the ring himself. Yeah. Awkward bit. A bit, yeah. Rude chop blocks Sting from behind, and the crowd deflates. Mm-hmm. Vader grabs a chair, but Bockwinkle catches him, so Race steals one from Heenan, who protests his innocence to Bockwinkle. <laughs> Rude holds Sting for a chair shot, but Sting dodges and Race nails Rude. Race flees as Sting kicks him out, and Sting pins Rude for the three count and the win. The crowd erupts with cheers as Sting claims the big gold belt. Heenan decries the injustice and goes to grab his chair. <laughs> Sting's shoulder is bloody, and Tony points out that Rude is bleeding from the chair shot. Yes, he is. We get a replay of the chair shot and pin. Thoughts of this one? That was a quite solid match. I will say, going back to my point earlier about there being a pacing problem, that headlock spot seemed like it went up for a while. Was that, or is that just me? No, I agree. I feel like 
they spend a lot of time in both the front face lock by Sting and the camel clutch by Rude. Yeah. They kind of sit on those for a while. And it's not like they're not doing anything, no. but it starts to be noticeable. Yeah. I, I didn't have as much problem with the camel clutch because, again, they, like I said, there was interruptions and movements around with it. But yeah, the headlock, it's weird. It's like Sting's this big high energy guy and just locks in a front face lock and just sort of went to hang out there for a while and just mm-hmm. not do anything. It feels like a real, it's a real heel move where you lock a guy like that and won't let him go. Like, you're trying to mess with the crowd, like, you know. If this is reverse, Rude does that to Sting, and it's like, aha, the crowd can't enjoy this match because I'm holding them still. Yeah. That aside, I thought the action, when they let it pick up, was really good. <laughs> it was good seeing Sting do the um, electric chair drop, or as I will call it with no context, the Mecha Shiva. <laughs> Which was the encounter, which was nice, because people no, normally can't counter the Mecha Shiva. It's a pretty powerful move. Yeah, yeah, that was, that was a nice spot. Yeah. The big problem with this match, if you're going to have one, is definitely the ending. Mm-hmm. So a bunch of stuff has to happen here. You need the ref knocked out. You need Harley coming in. You need Vader coming in. You need Nick Bockwinkle to stop Vader. Which, I kind of get the idea, like, he's off from the game with the ring, but then Vader, like, just sort of sits on the outside, like, the one punch he, or two punches he takes from Sting, like, debilitated him. He couldn't get back in the ring. In, in fairness, one was a windmill. Oh, that's true. Yeah. The wind-up does build a lot of speed and power. It's at least a plus five damage. That's true. Fair enough. <laughs> but yeah, it's just weird that he's, like, staying on the outside, like, oh, I wish I could get back in there. But then here's his, his manager, who's been getting beaten up all night, and, as we'll see later, will continue to get beat up all night, rushing in... <laughs> And doing the whole thing. Likewise, the timing is a little off with the um, Root Awakening. He pauses just a little too long to get race in time for the chair shot. Mm-hmm. It's not super distracting. Like, he holds him there and has to, like, audibly call for him. But his rotation is definitely slower and, like, the little pause at the end. Yeah. Because they need to be stopped before the end is kind of funny. Race is a little bit awkward in this match. He does a good spot in the opener. Yes. But then... um He's he's a little bit awkward in the bit where Sting's punching him in Vader, and then again at the ending, things seem a little mistimed, and I really do think it's it's him. It's not not like he's bad or anything, oh, no, but just no. uh, just that it seems like he's the one that's not quite in his in the right place on a few different oh, instances. Yeah, yeah. It's a case of where they backload so much of this match. Mm-hmm. He gets though so much choreography just for this match alone, not counting his <laughs> stuff he has later on this show. So right, I totally get that. Yes. The other, the other thing I have to know about the ending is, okay, so, Brood's hit with the chair shot, Sting sees it and gives him sort of the one kick to get him to leave, more like a shooing, shooing away kick. Yeah, which, which again, like, Race is just about falling out of the ring already. Yeah. He, he needs the extra push of wind, I guess, to knock him out there. <laughs> but okay, so Sting sees it happen and goes, eh, I like the pin off this. Yes. Sting is taking the team victory to get the title. It's like, and, and, and Bachwinkle is okay with this as well. Yeah. That's just so weird. There's there's a lot of questionable things about the ending of this. Yeah, it's like they have to get from point A to point B, but somewhere along the way, they take several detours and eventually get there, sort of careening into the finish. Yeah, I'll agree overall on it, I think. The match itself is actually surprisingly slow-paced at times, mm-hmm. but I do have to say the tremendous crowd interactions and huge reactions they're getting actually still make it feel quite exciting. Oh, yeah, no, I can see that. Yeah, absolutely. 
But yeah, like like you mentioned, Sting's front face lock and Root's camel clutch kind of make up a large portion of the match. Yeah. They do fight in and out, and they build up some tension and interest, but it just feels like we could have used some more hold variety, I think, is what it is for me. Yeah, and as I said, Sting being the one to hold the front face lock feels reversed. It, it is weird. And basically, the, the heel then crotches on the top rope. That feels like Sting escaping Rude's hold. Yes. It's bizarre. They do have some nice strikes and some great selling, though. Mm-hmm. Sting, in particular, has the crowd in the palm of his hand with his late match struggles at comebacks. If you did the same match with guys that didn't have such a great connection with the crowd, I think it would end up feeling very dull. Yeah. But with these two, it still actually ends up working. Yeah. Still, it it ended up a fun match. I just think it has some more flaws than I was expecting, given these two performers. Yeah. If they could have had a slightly scary finish, I didn't have so many moving parts and things that could go wrong and did slightly go wrong, Yeah, it would definitely be stronger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Famously, a rematch between the two would occur at the Wrestling Dantaku 2 show in Japan. During that match, Sting would technically lose via some chicanery um, and some cheating by Rude. However, during the match, Sting would do a dive over the top rope onto Rude, and he'd land an awkward separation sort of gap in the floor. Like It's like a two or three inch level off from the mat area to the floor. Mm-hmm. And just hitting that just the right way, much like we'd see about four years later with Shawn Michaels in the casket right. being thrown out, would unfortunately lead to freak injury and would ultimately end, lead to the very end of Rick Rude's wrestling career. Which is interesting because, as we'll see as we recover in a later promo, we're clearly building up a weirdly heel-versus-heel title match between Vader and Rick Rude. Which really was is an intriguing concept. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I feel like if Triple Third matches and not the awkward triangle match they do at Starcade 95. If those were a thing, absolutely, Sting, Vader, Rude would be a great match. I, I could see that being really cool, yeah. yeah. But for a reason, that's just not a thing they did at this point in wrestling. Really, until ECW started popularizing it. It's also worth noting um, that, because of the, the timing with all this stuff happening, they go to Japan and have that show. You know, it doesn't run in the US like a normal pay-per-view. It's just like a special Japan show they're doing. They pre-taped a bunch of stuff for WWE Saturday Night, including more stuff building up the Rick Rude-Vader match, which technically airs after his injury happens. <laughs> so he actually does have matches after the injury, just because of the weird time warp aspect. <laughs> a depressed Bobby Heenan sympathizes with Rude, and Bockwinkle wanders around in the background as Tony builds up the upcoming matches. As Rude is helped out, Tony mentions that Flair offered Hulk Hogan tickets to watch his match against Ricky Steamboat later tonight. Heenan says that they would undoubtedly be ringside tickets, so he takes a look around, but there's no Hogan. And this is Hogan, so they would have counted against his, what, eight pay-per-views or four pay-per-views a year, whatever his contract was? (laughs) Yeah. So it's probably good he didn't show up. Our sixth match is Bunkhouse Buck with Colonel Robert Parker, versus The Natural, Dustin Rhodes, in a bunkhouse match, which is no disqualification. Referee for this one is Nick Patrick. So, a running theme throughout this year is that Colonel Parker has a beef with Dustin Rhodes, mostly based on him disliking his father. And Dustin, you know, sort of wanted to be his own man, setting up for himself and all that. So, Parker would bring in Bunkhouse Buck, would be his new henchman, basically, and challenge Dustin to his signature match, or I guess his, his dad's signature match. <laughs> at this point, I'm not sure Dustin has a signature match, really. 
uh, leading to this pay-per-view match. I was just thinking it's a good thing this is a bunkhouse match, not a bunkhouse stampede match. Yeah. <laughs> Never forget that weird battle royale where they're in a cage and they have weapons. <laughs> that, that, that should have been so much cooler than it was. Yeah. And, and, and apparently, and I do, I do recall on that one, apparently a much better match was happening off camera constantly. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, they, they constantly managed to film the most boring part of that match happening, yeah. and then the announcers are telling us about something much more interesting happening off camera. Yeah, oh, the guy fell off the cage. We didn't cut to it. <laughs> it is funny that there's not a bunkhouse stampede on Spring Stampede. Yeah, that's true. Interestingly, ring announcer Capetta just calls Parker the greatest promoter on the face of the earth rather than adding the usual self-proclaimed or he calls himself thing that you get in cases like that. Maybe that's just a thing with Parker that I haven't noticed. Yeah. I don't know. That whole self-proclaimed thing and then you say it thing always bugs me. <laughs> you got that with the world's greatest tag team in WWE. They're like, the self-proclaimed world's greatest tag team. Like, but you, you just said it, didn't you? <laughs> sort of? Gene did that earlier in, a, in the promo segment as well, actually. Oh, yeah. He, he just says he's the greatest promoter on the face of the earth. I was like, oh, well, nice compliment. Thanks, Gene. Bunkhouse Buck's duster coat does look cool. I will give him that. It does. Tony tells us this is actually Buck's first pay-per-view. He removes the coat, but keeps a button-down shirt on this time, so he doesn't look like he's wrestling in cowboy pajamas. That's good. Well, they call in the natural. Natural. Rhodes runs down to the ring. <laughs> <laughs> He's holding a chunk of lumber and dives at high velocity over the top rope to clothesline Buck to the mat. <laughs> now that is an entrance. Yes. Rhodes batters Buck, and a diving clothesline and big punch send him to the apron, where Rhodes suplexes him back in for two. Buck soon spills out of the ring again, as Heenan questions Texans beating the crap out of those who offend them, and says it's much better to demand cash. <laughs> I do agree, but this is a wrestling show, not a legal drama. Yes, that's true. They fight outside, and Rhodes knocks Buck down. Buck makes this kind of weird, uh, yeah, noise. <laughs> Not sure what that was. It's like a weird ZZ Top uh, noise, yeah. <laughs> Back in, Rhodes continues dominating, and Buck swings wild punches at nothing after an eye poke. But Buck ducks a crossbody, and Rhodes flies over him, bounces off the mat, and flies out of the ring to land by Parker. <laughs> Holy crap, Dustin. <laughs> Parker chokes him with a kerchief, and Buck retrieves the lumber and breaks it over Rhodes, then calls the crowd geeks and, pretty sure, silly b****s. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure he says that. It does sound like doesn't it, yeah. He takes off the button-down shirt, so now he just looks like he's wearing pajamas. Weird bit, as he seems to plan a dive, but just kind of walks down to punch Rhodes. <laughs> On the ramp, a Buck clothesline sends Rhodes end over end, and he chokes Rhodes with his suspenders. Rhodes is bleeding badly and, while blinded, nearly slugs Patrick. <laughs> Buck strikes him in the bleeding forehead, then works the leg with the aid of the apron and ring post, but Rhodes kicks him away, gets powder from his pocket, and flings it in Buck's face. Heenan actually jokes that it might be a note from Dusty Oh yeah, when, when he first pulls it out. <laughs> Buck takes off his belt to whip Rhodes. I'm getting somewhat worried about this disrobing. Hopefully he never thinks of how he could use his pants as a weapon. <laughs> Yeah. Do you want the match like this to go 20, 30 minutes because, you know, it's <laughs> yeah. things, yeah. When Rhodes fights back, Buck punts him hard in the crotch. 
Buck beats Rhodes up in the corner, but Rhodes dodges a charging kick, and Buck jams his knee on the ropes. So Rhodes puts him on the ropes for a charging punt. Tony proposes that Rhodes should try out for the Dallas Cowboys. Heenan says Buck might be the football. (laughs) Bionic elbow. Rhodes takes off his own studded belt and beats the crap out of Buck with it, then takes off his boot and hits a deadly second rope boot strike. (gasps) Rhodes rips Buck's shirt, which actually improves his outfit, (laughs) and whips him some more, then sends Buck outside with a big clothesline. Buck is now bleeding too. Buck takes something from his pocket to punch Rhodes, but Rhodes ducks and continues the beating. Bulldog, but Parker climbs up, so Rhodes breaks his pin to suplex Parker in and starts whipping him, but Buck rolls Rhodes up for two. Rhodes wins a slugfest for one. With Buck near the ropes, Parker sneaks something into his hand, and he slugs Rhodes hard in the face with it for the three count and the win. Buck and Parker celebrate as Patrick checks on Rhodes, and we get a replay of that final punch. It looks like it might have been taped up, quote-unquote, brass knuckles. I think that's the idea, yeah. Heenan is thrilled that a Rhodes has lost a bunkhouse match. Thoughts on this one? It's a bloody fight, uh, for sure. I see it on Dustin's uh, behalf. My issue with the match in general is that it's not quite the same like pacing issue. It's this less holes and everything, but they definitely spend a lot of time with Dustin getting beaten up. <laughs> Which isn't necessarily bad. And to be fair to the match, they got a good amount of sympathy for him. It really made his comeback feel strong, but I wonder if maybe he could have paced that a little more. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe slightly more even match. Might be more interesting. The other thing with this match, and it's really not a knock against this match, just where it's on the show, is we had that crazy, chaotic, four-person fight everywhere, hit with weapons constantly match. Now here's a second one. Admittedly, there's more psychology to this one. They work, you know, limbs and such on here, but having a second big chaotic fight with weapons on that show dilutes it a little bit, I think. I'll agree with you to some extent on that, but I do feel like they make the two of them different enough. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not identical, no, for sure. They each, like, take their own variants on hardcore. Like, the tag one does more of the, like, let's range all over the arena right. type of hardcore, and this one does more of the let's be a focused match that just is more brutal. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that they took different angles with it. Oh, yeah. Like, they're not identical, but it's, it's just the bleeding and the weapon shots aren't quite as impactful because we've seen it before on the show is all I mean. Mm-hmm. It's not quite like the arcade where we have the really good and really violent <laughs> yes. quit match on a show where literally everyone bleeds in their matches. Right. Yeah. That, that, that's, shall we say, a bit too much repetition. That's, that's the, I believe, still the only TVMA rated show we've covered. <laughs> yes. TVMA for all for so much blood. Yes. The other thing with me with match is that it's not quite like the tag match where almost literally every spot is here's a weapon hits them with it. Um, they vary a little bit with both punches and kicks. To be fair, and they use weapons in sometimes good, sometimes weird ways. Like it's good wrapping your hand at the belt with the buckles on it, punching people, mm-hmm. but then less good doing a fist drop with your hand in a boot. Yeah, that was a little bit odd. Yeah. But for me, it's a little funny that they spend so much time just hitting people with weapons, and then what finishes off? Another weapon shot, but just a straight punch with a weapon. Mm-hmm. After so many other straight punches with weapons. I guess it's it's kind of like a, you know, it's a buildup of, if it's a secret weapon, obviously it hits harder. I suppose. It's just like, if if this was a straight match between these two, then, you know, still be a lot of brawling and punching and, you know, all that. 
but then the finish is a weapon, then it's like, oh, well, they brought a weapon to this, but... I'll grant you that. One thing I will say I liked about it, though, is that they did a nice, like, false finish with it, where he sneaks out his own one first, and Dustin ducks that, but then Dustin thinks he's dealt with the weapon. Right. So now he's open to the actual weapon shot. Yeah. So I, I did like that aspect of it. Yeah. It also has the classic faces are dumb bit, where... Dustin could win a match. Yes. And just sort of let go to run over at Parker, who's on the other side of the ring. <laughs> yeah, you just win the match first, and then go beat him up. Yeah, right? But yeah, the whole, I thought it was good, but yeah, it's, like I said, it's a little diluted by being on the same show as, as the Chicago Street Fight, but they definitely did their own thing. I think much like the Chicago Street Fight, I think I like this a little bit more than you did. Mm. I thought it was a, a great, really wild brawl. They had creative use of some creative weapons. Uh, terrific intensity to the whole thing, and a lot of changes in advantage, all in front of a very hot crowd. And they mixed in some very big stunts, courtesy of Rhodes' willingness to dive and fall in pretty much any way he needed to for the good of the match. Yeah, he nearly takes out Parker when he does his missed dive and roll out on the bottom rope. was bonkers. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's brutal, but it really draws you in, and it feels like it could go either way, which, considering this is apparently Buck's first pay-per-view match, is a major accomplishment with a new character. Mm-hmm. So I just have one question. Okay. What the heck happened at Slampery 1994? Yes. A month after this match, these same two guys will have a massive snoozer of a bull rope match. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's hard to believe it's the same guys. In that match, it felt like Buck had literally nothing when he went on offense. But in this, he was a good, brutal striker. I, I really wish this Buck had stuck around. Yeah. I wonder... I know later on, there famously is a bit with Dustin where they get stricter about blood and that kind of stuff. I wonder if there's started to be some push on that, and maybe that's where they start pulling it back. Or maybe it just is that Buck is the sort of wrestler that works really well in a full-on hardcore match, but if you ask him to be more controlled, maybe he legit doesn't have other things. I don't know, but... Yeah, maybe. It's just amazing to think that the same two guys in the span of just two months have a really nice wild brawl and an absolute snooze fest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I will agree. This is a pretty punchy brawl, but it's a good punchy brawl. Yeah. I, I thought Dustin made him work more than I was expecting it to. Mm-hmm. Cause like I said, having watched the previous bunkhouse book match and seeing him in the tag parts later of not really that impressed with him. So seeing him in this, it definitely is a better version of him than when we get other times. Yes. If this version of him had stuck around, I would like him a lot more. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, they would then have a board match at the next pay-per-view. Which sucked. Yes. <laughs> I will bring a little history up, kind of interesting for you. The long-running story of this uh, Colonel Parker, Bunkhouse Buck, and Dustin Rhodes aspect eventually leading to him reforming his own version of the stud stable, mm. which we get towards the end of 94. That stable actually goes back a long ways. The original version was back in 1982, back in Southern Championship Wrestling, when it was actually Bob Parker's brother that formed it. Oh, okay. He was described as the original Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. I'll tell you he's listed on Wikipedia. Oh, okay. His version back then had Jimmy Golden, a.k.a. Bunkhouse Buck, in it. Oh. As well as Arn Anderson, who we would see involved in that storyline later. Okay, that's interesting. They would do as well in CWA, the Continental Wrestling Association, between A6 and A9, where it can be those two, as well as Dutch Mantel, Tom Pritchard, and Cactus Jack, apparently. Huh. And finally, I'll leave it to this, you get a version in 1991 in Smoky Mountain 
where again, Rob Parker would come over there, he'd fight with the teams such as Rock and Roll Express and the Hemley Bodies, and it would again be him and Jimmy Golden and Dutch Mantel. The stable broke up when Rob Parker left Bucky Mountain to go to WCW. Okay. And here comes the Spunkhouse Buck now. So that stud stable concept has really followed Parker around. Yeah. That's 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 neat. Yeah. So you're telling me that, that were, there were actually moments in wrestling history where we could presumably have tag matches with Arn Anderson and Cactus Jack on the same team. Uh, yes. That sounds so. kind of awesome, actually. Yeah. <laughs> we cut backstage, where Jesse is with an infuriated Rick Rude, who is punching lockers. A paramedic or the like is working on Jerry Sags in the background. It's It's been like an hour. Is he just getting to Sags now? Yeah, no rush. This seems bad. Thank you, Tony Schiavone, Jesse the Body Ventura. Back here into the dressing room. I'm hoping to get an interview with Ravishing Rick Rude. Rick, look at I understand what happened out there tonight, but I'm confused. I mean, I figured that Race and Vader were coming out there to aid you, and I'm not so sure about it. I didn't send out no SOS. I didn't need no help. What you're looking at is 14 years of hard work, blood, sweat, tears, down the train. I didn't need no help. I had to stay right where I want. Vader, Race, you cost me. I'm going to make you pay. I'm going to make you pay. I'm going to make you Loud noises. Rude and Vader shove each other, and Regal, Nobbs, Austin, and a towel-clad Jerry Sags get between them, wisely directing most of their attention to holding Rude back so they don't tempt Vader to murder them. Agreed. Regal's expression during all of this is wonderful, by the way. Mm -hmm. As Rude screams at Vader, Regal just gets this look of pure horror, like, Oh dear, the lunatic is enraging the monster, and I'm in the immediate vicinity. I may well die today. Yes. <laughs> it's also worth noting that Regal's wearing, it looks like blue jeans, right? It does, yes. Yeah. Like, really casual. Regal. Very, very British lordly uh, outfit to wear. Yeah. Blue jeans. <laughs> exactly. I-, I thought this was a great segment. It was. Rude is so angry that he's not even thinking clearly about just who he's challenging. Yeah. And it definitely made me interested in seeing where this could go. Mm-hmm. Sadly, as you mentioned earlier, we won't get to see this fully developed because, as we covered on Slambury 94, Rude would go on to suffer a career-ending injury against Sting in Japan. I, I do really wonder where this would have gone otherwise. Maybe a face turn for Rude? Yeah, I don't know. Face version Rick Rude versus Vader would have been quite interesting. Yeah. Or, like, Rude fights Vader and Vader loses because of Harley Race messing up and then Vader turns face? That could be interesting, too, yeah. I know one thing that would definitely have been great. Hmm. Rick Rude's tights. Oh, of course, yeah. Vader and Rude tights would be an amazing sight. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We go back to the commentary desk, and Tony says that Rude blames Race and Vader for his loss. Heenan says, of course, who else would he blame, Mr. Rogers? (laughs) Aaron Neville stays stock still in the background for this whole segment, just staring at the ring. Why is he there? (laughs) I mean, I guess he sat down and no one said otherwise. Yeah. No one is willing to acknowledge or question it. Tony throws to footage from 1994's Super Brawl 4, where the boss, Ray Trailer, in the very much copyright-infringing gimmick, was handcuffed to a cage, broke the cuffs, and beat up Vader with his nightstick. It's surprising to see such violence that Super Brawl 4, The Quest for Peace. 
<laughs> it just you don't expect that. <laughs> Tony finally gives us a let's go to the ring. Let's go to the ring and Gary Capetta. Our seventh match is The Boss versus Vader with Harley Race in a gigantic grudge match. Referee for this one is Randy Anderson. And by the way, a gigantic grudge match appears to just be a normal match, just that happens to have two big dudes in it. Yeah. It's not no DQ or anything. There's one part that makes you think it might be something more, but yeah, we'll get to that. So as noted, at Super Brawl, the boss, not man, was a guest ref in Vader's match. Uh, Things would go awry as Vader and his manager would not take kindly to the boss they thought officiating poorly. So they beat him up and handcuffed him to the cage. He would, of course, break free and beat them up and then cost Vader the match, which certainly did not make Vader happy. Presumably he had a similar locker-punching incident after that, same way he just dealt with on the other side. We know he did at Starcade 93, at least, so... That's true. He really just like replaced the lockers with like Nerf ones or something like nice and, <laughs> yeah. ni- nice and foamy. He's like, ah! Ooh, so nice. <laughs> Or just move them because you know Vader is going to be mad. A, lo- a locker of pillows. Ooh, yeah, there you go. It's somewhat ironic that the boss is shown on a wanted poster well dressed as a member of law enforcement. Yeah. That old gimmick is weird from the get go. He goes from in WF being a prison guard, which they conflate 100% with being a cop, which is not quite the same thing. Not quite the same. I mean, there's a lot of crossover. Yeah, there's some overlap there, but they just go like right from he's a prison guard to just he's a cop. Just doesn't matter what else happens. Yeah, and that's basically what he is here. He's he's basically a cop. Yeah. I assume that Vader's appearance on a wanted poster would be more informational without a reward listed. You know, just this guy's in the area. We can't do anything about it. Just treat it as a natural disaster and take cover. Yeah. <laughs> Vader's on the same level as a st- actual stampede. Yes. I'm pretty sure that Boss's sirens at the start of his music are the same ones that they eventually used for Scott Steiner in his later WCW days. Uh, Could be. The rest of his theme is very old cop show, so quite appropriate. Yeah. (laughs) It is amazing that WCW thought they could get away with him literally dressing as WWF's big boss man, but just wearing a black outfit instead of blue. (laughs) Yeah. It's the same look. (laughs) Yes. Vader, sadly, does not have the helmet this year, but he does have Harley Race and a camera crew that follows Race instead of focusing on Vader posing awesomely with Pyro. Good job, WCW. (laughs) Boss charges Vader on the ramp. A lot of that tonight. But Vader stops that with a punch. Race holds Boss for the flying refrigerator, but Boss dodges and Race is flattened. Heenan asks why WCW bothers setting up a ring and Tony cracks up. (laughs) Right. Vader takes off his mask already. Boss clotheslines him into the ring, and they trade big blows until Vader slams Boss, goes to the ramp, charges, and dives over the ropes onto Boss, Mm -hmm. catching his feet on the ropes and coming down really fast. Yes. Boss gets the knees up. That could not have felt good to anybody, but it looked awesome. That's true. Nicely, despite countering, Boss sells the legs, limping around, which, in retrospect, might not actually be selling. Yeah. (laughs) Could be. It's just nice to see an acknowledgement that countering a move that way against a guy as huge as Vader would still damage you. Absolutely, yeah. 
Boss actually dominates, with lots of big strikes in and out of the ring, and even sends Vader over the barricade into the crowd. And I'm pretty sure he yelled, See ya! as he did in a great moment. <laughs> I think he did, yes. Back in, Boss gets big cheers for their body slam. They trade blows, but Vader catches a jumping body press and dumps Boss over the ropes to the floor. And Boss nearly goes head first, but barely catches the ropes to flip himself over on the way and save his life. Yes. <laughs> Terrifying spot. Tony and Heenan acknowledge that Boss very well could have died there. They also claim that Anderson didn't see it to explain there not being a DQ, but from the look of terror on Anderson's face as it happened, he definitely did. <laughs> see, I like to think that you, you get one free over-the-top rope move in a gigantic grudge match. <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah. That or he's just too afraid to DQ Vader. Yeah, I, I, fair. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, just if you look at Anderson while that's happening, it's abundantly clear he definitely saw what was happening because mm-hmm. he looks terrified. Oh, yeah. Boss understandably takes a few moments to recover and to let Race get a few kicks in, and we see a shot of Vader, who is currently bleeding around the eye. Jeez. Vader suplexes Boss back in as Heenan jokes that he's going to slug the silent Neville if he keeps asking questions. (laughs) Yes, Neville is still randomly sitting there. Yes. Vader jumping body splash gets two. Vader mauls Boss, but he fights back with his own strikes. He does whiff on an uppercut, which Tony acknowledges. Mm-hmm. Huge boss jumping clothesline. You can hear the smack. But Vader soon flattens him with a clothesline, only for Boss to take him off the second rope with an inverted power slam. Boss gets two with a second rope DDT and one with a flying body press. Race howls, especially at the second rope DDT bit. Mm-hmm. Vader catches another top rope dive into a smooth power slam and gets two with a second rope slingshot splash then hits his beautiful moonsault for the three-count and the win. Interestingly, despite the crowd clearly favoring Boss throughout the match, the moonsault gets huge cheers before they go back to booing Vader's win. <laughs> of course, yeah. And how can you not cheer that? Yeah, it's, it's just so amazing that even though they're against him, they still give him acknowledgement there. I like that. Exactly, yeah. Race takes Boss's nightstick and cuffs and tries to cuff Boss to the ropes, as Heenan accidentally calls him Boss Man. <laughs> But Boss stops him, slugs him, takes the nightstick, and clubs Vader with it before beating the crap out of Race with the nightstick. Commissioner Bockwinkle gets into the ring and backs Boss off, encouraging him to get out of the ring as Vader recovers, and Anderson gently encourages him back. Bockwinkle takes Boss up the ramp as Vader comes over to roar at the commentary team, asking them, Who's the man now? Tony and Heenan confirm that Vader is the man. Absolutely. We get replays of Vader's final splash and moonsault. Thoughts on this? It was a very good, very hard-hitting match. Mm-hmm. It's one of those matches they definitely felt the next day. I'll say. And probably the next week. Yes. What's really neat with this match is they don't just do the normal big man stuff. They give you that, but they give you extra bits. Even them doing more basic moves that just aren't really done in a big man versus big man match, like suplex and stuff are neat to see. Mm-hmm. Likewise... Vader and Boss, they all say this too. Vader and the Boss do a good job of making all the stuff work pretty well. Mm-hmm. Boss has a bit of trouble with the body slam at first, and Vader politely assists him in letting him slam him. Yeah. It's not like kayfabe burning, but you can definitely tell that there's some assistance there. Because, to be fair, Vader's, you know, life is in the line when he's being helped upside down like that. So I would absolutely help them and do that to me too. Yes. The crowd pops big for that slam. Yeah. 
if anything, you could argue that maybe they're a bit too adventurous and too ambitious, maybe. Because there's a couple of spots they do. I think they execute generally well, but like really the DT spot looks kind of odd. Because boss like actually he's doing the DT even does like the quick sort of drop backwards off the ropes, but then it looks more like an actual suplex. Yeah, I can see that. It still looks like an impactful move, it's just it looks like one guy was doing one move and one moves, guy was taking a different move. Mm-hmm. But credit or credit to do, just trying to move like that and executing as close as they did is still worthy of merit. Yes, absolutely. Likewise, even if you're going to critique, you know, whether Vader always hits his moonsault 100% center mass and, you know, perfectly, the fact that he does such a beautiful looking moonsault at his size is impressive to see. Yes, absolutely. I'm much of the same mind. This is two big, scary dudes pounding the ever-loving crap out of each other, but it's intermixed with some neat counter spots that give it a bit more complexity than we sometimes get from that sort of match. Mm-hmm. Vader is big and awesome as usual, but Boss gave as good as he got, and both got some of the hard hits and big slams that you want from this sort of match. It was really cool to see somebody get to go toe-to-toe with Vader like that. In fact, it's almost a little bit too much in favor of Boss at the start. Hmm. But once Vader starts getting offense, the match gets more even quite quickly, so I can forgive it. I guess they just felt the need to get Boss on even footing with Vader first. I can see that. But yeah, very entertaining match from two very hard-working big guys. I enjoyed this quite a bit. Yeah, I think that pacing... I've seen in other Vader matches, even with him and Sting. Sting will come in really strong and sort of throw him off his game. Mm-hmm. Then all he needs is one good strike and one good yeah. counter, and then he can take over again. Yeah. I just think maybe they could have recognized, okay, Boss is just about equivalently big as Vader, so we probably actually don't need the uh, heavy offense intro from him necessarily. Yeah. Like I said, it, once they get Vader doing offense, it feels perfectly nice and even, so it gets there very quickly. No, I'm with you on that. I, I can see that point, yeah. The other thing I really, really liked about this is both of them were really good about selling for each other. Yes. They're both big guys that look tough, mm-hmm. but are actually really generous. Yeah. Not, like, too generous, not where it, like, devalues them, but both of them really do a nice job in this and in other matches of being big dudes that are not afraid to show that they got hurt. Yeah. When you get a wrestler like that, that's that's special. Oh, for sure, yeah. After a short delay involving, you know, the whole WWE International title at the next show, the few would resume in time for the Bash at the Beat review where they would have another match. Back to Mean Gene, and he shills the hotline where you can talk to Sting. He says it like it's just because Sting won the title, but they'd already been planning to have Sting on the hotline before. It's almost like wrestling is scripted or something. I was going to say, is this like a different Sting? <laughs> 1-900-909-9900. He gets cheap cheers by calling Chicago a major league city and throws to the main event. Let's get back to the ring. Come on! <laughs> How much you taunt us in the past? We get the wanted poster with Flair and Steamboat, but Tony suddenly says there's something going on in the back. We cut to Gene for a moment, and he looks rather confused, clearly wondering why he's being cute again, before they properly cut backstage, where we see Jesse with the boss and Commissioner Bockwinkle, i.e. the actual boss. Yes. (laughs) They fail to turn on Jesse's microphone for a bit, but they get there. I guess it does help make this look unplanned, if I'm being generous. Let's go with that. Winkle. We've had some tough matches tonight, 
where the contestants stipulated to the rules before they got into the ring. This was not the scenario tonight. And I realize how you feel. And I, and I sympathize with you. But I'm going to tell you right now, you represent a lot of good people, and they do it in a certain way. This is not one of them. And I'm taking this away from you right now. I'm taking the handcuffs away from you. Okay? Because I'm saying one more thing to you. As far as I'm concerned, personally, you're no longer the boss. Now, I want to say that I sympathize with you, and I know how you feel, but there, there's no two ways. You can't just take this. We know what this has done. And you did the wrong thing. It's not a popular decision on my part, but that's the way it's going to be. Well, there you got it, ladies and gentlemen. Nick Bockwinkle taking away the handcuffs, taking away the wand, the baton, and literally stripping the name boss from the boss. Let's go to Michael Buffer and the main event. Jesse oddly calls the nightstick a wand at the end there. Does he think boss is a wizard? Yeah. I'm not not sure which Harry Potter house he's part of, but I'm sure (laughs) sure someone has decided that. (laughs) So this is actually happening because boss being boss was getting WCW in legal trouble with the WWF, but I think it's actually a good way to handle it. Boss semi-justifiably lost it after his match when Race went for him, but went too far in reply, so Bockwinkle lays down the law here in one of his better segments. They had to do this, but it was nice that they gave it a bit of a story. Right, I can see that. Yeah, Bockwinkle got to the right point, but he definitely um, repeats himself maybe a bit here. Yes, definitely. He lingers a little on, on his statements and kind of restates himself several times and says the exact same thing a couple times. <laughs> Can be repetitive, maybe, perhaps. It's it's not quite as bad as uh, Starcade '94. No, though. that's <laughs> this one. He clearly knows what he's going to say. True. Yeah. But yeah. So of course, this would lead to the boss becoming the guardian angel, which makes me think of "It's a Wonderful Life" in a very different way now. <laughs> like he's gonna shove you off the bridge instead of saving you. The guy who actually ran that program, uh, the Guardian Angels, I believe, ran for mayor of New York City recently. Oh, interesting. It'd be lost, but... Still interesting. <laughs> but, but that was just an interesting thing to find, yeah. All right, our final match is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat versus the Nature Boy Ric Flair for Flair's WCW World Heavyweight Championship. Referee for this one is Nick Patrick. Now champion again. Flair faces off with the returning rival in the form of Ricky Steamboat. Famously, the pair would have a classic match in 1989 at a bizarrely one-off show, specifically in Chicago, which is nice for this, actually. The way they got to this point was a little interesting. So Steamboat would reappear and try to get his match. This would lead to, of all people, Steve Austin giving a hard time over this. They would have a match between him and Steve Austin where... He would win via DQ over Austin mm-hmm. after losing a tag match earlier with him and Flair to become number one contender. I guess it kind of goes back to the whole U.S. champion is number one contender thing. Mm-hmm. Although, if he has to have a match, he's not number one contender then. Yeah. He's what? Theoretically number one contender? <laughs> they go back and forth on whether it actually means number one or it just gets you close. I don't know. Yeah. They're not, they're not very consistent on that, which will shock no one. Yeah. And, of course, the last bit of build-up is there'd be a fight in the ring involving Flair Steamboat and others, and in the process, Steamboat would accidentally hit Flair, and Flair was not so sure it was accidental. Oh, okay. That's what they, they referenced earlier. From yeah. that angle? Yeah. 
I thought it would be Flare accidentally hitting Steamboat. No. That's interesting. That explains some of the mood in this match, then. Yeah. It's, it takes it away from the, just the friendly rivals thing to maybe being more personal, yeah. Interesting. Steamboat's music starts up, then suddenly stops. I swear that you hear what sounds like Ric Flair talking to some people backstage and giving a quick woo while the commentators are talking about what just happened with the boss. <laughs> Could be. It wouldn't surprise me at this point. Steamboat's music starts up again, and he comes to the ring, wearing dragon wings and walking between two awesome smoking dragon statues. Oh, yeah. That's cool. He has a torch, and he does a fire-breathing stunt when he reaches the ring. He has very cool dragon art on his pants. Mm-hmm. We see a Beavis and Butthead sign in the crowd praising Steamboat, which is a sentence I definitely never expected to say. Yeah. <laughs> Tony points out that the fans are split. There's some Dragon fans and some Flare fans, and we definitely see that throughout the match. Yes. Flare is out next in a black and silver robe. A sign in the crowd spells woo with two H's, which is too, too many. <laughs> Buffer is here for ring intervals again, and says, the WCW again. Of course he does. Did no one talk to this guy between matches? <laughs> right? He runs through the organization and executives sanctioning the match, which I rather liked. I know it's just a bunch of babble, but it does make it feel more like a legit major title match. Yeah. When you list all that stuff. Buffer almost says that Steamboat is from Chicago, but quickly corrects himself to Charlotte. <laughs> Steamboat actually gets booed by a significant portion of the crowd, which I'm not sure I've ever seen. Yes. Flair also gets a mix of boos and cheers. The crowd's definitely conflicted, as Tony pointed out. Mm -hmm. Michael Buffer, by the way, is wearing an earring here, which I don't think I've ever noticed on any other show. Huh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm thinking back, and I really don't think I've ever seen him wearing an earring before. Yeah, that doesn't seem familiar to me either. It's the 90s, you know, that's happening. Yeah. <laughs> We get a shot of Flair's then-wife, Beth, in the crowd, and Tony goes over the chaos of the earlier matches on the card and says, this is going to be an entirely different match. Flair and Steamboat will keep it in the ring and do a straight wrestling match. Rapid counter-wrestling to start, and they're evenly matched. Heenan points out that fans booing Steamboat probably still like him, they just like Flair more. Tony agrees, and he and Heenan go over the lengthy history of Flair versus Steamboat, including Steamboat's first time taking a title from Flair, the NWA TV title in the late 1970s. Steamboat's time with Vern Gagne in the AWA also gets a mention. The counter-wrestling continues until Flair, frustrated, shoves Steamboat hard, so Steamboat gives him a mighty slap. Flair shoves him again and earns a slap so hard he has to use the ropes to keep his feet. Stare down, and Steamboat goes on hard offense, moving beyond holds to a military press drop, flying head scissors, and a couple drop kicks that send Flair to the outside. Steamboat goes out, but just throws Flair back in, holding true to Tony's prediction, and hits a top rope flying chop for two. Flair goes back out to recover, and Steamboat calmly waits. Nicely, Flair goes to the ramp to get in, to make it easy to do so without lowering his guard. Yeah. Nice little touch there. See that? Absolutely, yeah. Flair starts using the hair to take Steamboat down, and an angry Steamboat knocks him flat. Flair's shove, Steamboat slap, and Patrick separates them, yelling, Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Whoa! Whoa! <laughs> he warns both of them, especially Flair. Patrick having to reassert control nicely shows how emotional the match is getting. 
Back to wrestling, and Steamboat works a side headlock. Flair tries to shove him to the ropes, but Steamboat kicks off the corner turnbuckle, flips over Flair, and takes him down to keep the hold on. Heenan does note that technically Steamboat was illegally using the ropes there. Awesome spot, though. Oh, yeah. Steamboat really grinds on the headlock and earns several two counts. Flair keeps getting caught by shoulder blocks on escape attempts. Flair, buddy, work on your match prep. <laughs> right. Flair finally throws Steamboat over the top rope, and Patrick is just about to DQ Flair when he sees that Steamboat caught the ropes and was skinning the cat back in. It should probably still be a DQ, but I like that they at least try to explain it. Yeah, I mean, I think a tent should count for something, if we're going with these rules, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I guess you can say maybe it only really counts if they actually do hit the floor hard, and since Steamboat didn't have a chance of being critically injured, maybe that's why. Like I said, at least there's an explanation. Yeah. Like, an attempt at one. Steamboat gets two counts with a roll-up and side headlock takeover, but Flair rolls him onto his shoulders for two. Flair finally escapes the side headlock with a knee strike to the gut, but Steamboat quickly shifts to a front face lock, keeping Flair away from the ropes. Flair escapes with multiple shoulder blocks in the corner and dodges a Steamboat dropkick, then repeatedly uses his own body to hide closed-fist punches from Patrick. Flair lands his excellent knee drop, and Steamboat writhes in pain. Heenan randomly points out Neville's beefy arms and asks why he wasn't in the earlier street fight. <laughs> yeah, he's still just sitting there. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Flair wears Steamboat down, but Tony points out that Steamboat quickly gets to his knees to try to make Flair expend more energy pushing him down again, as Flair does for seven two counts. Mm-hmm. Heenan tells him, use the tights next time. <laughs> yeah. Just being, just being helpful, yeah. Yeah. Another three two counts from a back elbow. Flair complains to Patrick. Flair and Steamboat exchange chops, but Flair crossbodies Steamboat and himself to the floor. Flair trials a pile driver out on the floor, but Steamboat backbody drops free. Flair comes up with glitter on his back, and I'm shocked that I think that's the first time I've actually said that tonight. Uh, yeah, I think so. Steamboat goes toward the commentary table, but pats Bockwinkle's shoulder, then tries a flying splash with Flair on the barricade. But Flair dodges, and Steamboat eats Barricade. Tony theorizes that Steamboat might actually have wanted to grab a chair, but stopped when he saw Bockwinkle, which nicely builds up how angry Steamboat is getting at Flair's tricks. Yeah, I can see that. Back in, Steamboat counters a Flair top rope move with a beautiful superplex for two and a half. Steamboat flings him to the corner for a Flair flip, chops Flair down, and hits a flying chop to the outside. Flair begs for mercy, and there is a great shot where you can see the welts that Flair's chops have left on Steamboat's chest. Oh, yeah. So just perfect camera work there for once. Steamboat lands his own chops, and Flair flops for two, but Flair sends Steamboat outside by the tights, but Steamboat sunset flips back in. Flair keeps his balance and punches him, then goes for the knee drop, but Steamboat catches his leg and smoothly transitions to the figure four. Mm -hmm. Great spot there. Steamboat earns multiple two counts and fights expertly to keep Flair away from the ropes, drawing a from Heenan on a close miss. <laughs> Flair finally manages an eye poke to break, and Steamboat rolls out to recover. Flair struggles to stand, and on an attempted suplex, Steamboat falls on top for two and a half. They trade fast two counts, and Heenan says his blood pressure is 200 over 300. <laughs> that good. So hopefully they can get that paramedic that was working on Jerry Sags to come out. <laughs> yeah, right? Flair begs for time, and Steamboat angrily asks, 
Why? <laughs> they chop each other around the ring. Tony notes that Steamboat is able to use his legs to put more power in his chops, and Heenan adds that Flair just doesn't have the leg power after the figure four. Great bit of commentary there. Yeah. Steamboat double chop sends Flair to the ramp, and Steamboat flips over a Flair counter of a Steamboat suplex and chops Flair back in. Nice. Flair flipped to the floor, but he gets his boots up on a Steamboat diving chop from the apron, and Heenan yells for Flair to get Steamboat back in for a pin. Easy there, coach, Tony says. <laughs> back in, more chops by both, and Steamboat hits a flying crossbody for two and nine-tenths. Flair clotheslines him, but his hurt leg slows him going to the top, so Flair Karma strikes. Beautiful Steamboat flying splash, clear across the ring, but Flair dodges, so Steamboat's knee gets hurt. Figure four. Steamboat tries to resist it, but Flair kicks him and locks the hold on, earning multiple two counts. Steamboat agonizingly drags himself and Flair to the ropes to force the break. Flair goes after the knee, but Steamboat counters another figure four and a hip toss for two each, then gets Flair up top for a massive superplex. Both are down, and Patrick's counts to eight before Steamboat drapes an arm for two and a half. Patrick is forced to dodge out of the ring on a whip and lunges back in to count two on a Steamboat roll-up. Steamboat flips over a back suplex attempt and grabs his elevated double chicken wing hold, but his legs give out, and he goes down. He goes for a pin, bridging, for the three count. The cheering crowd and the commentators think that Steamboat has won, as does Steamboat himself, but Anderson comes out to consult, and Bockwinkle enters the ring. Patrick tells him that both men's shoulders were down, neither had control, and he had to count both down. Bockwinkle advises Patrick as the crowd chants and cheers for Flair and Steamboat, but Patrick finally rules Flair the winner. Steamboat protests, but the ruling stands and fireworks go off. Bockwinkle comes over to explain. champion, but this was not a time limit situation. The other situation is this. Flair was the champion, and it was the job of Steamboat to take and be one sixteenth or one thirty-second of an inch ahead of him. He was not. He did not prove it, so he, at this moment, until I can take this to the board, the championship will be retained by Flair. So you're a great decision. So you, you've got to talk to the board yet, right? Well, I mean, I, this is the decision I've made tonight. The match is over, and so be it for this moment. But so right now, Flair is the champion, and, the, and I'll take this to the board. All right, he will take it to the board, so the controversy continues. Hopefully we'll have uh, some results of your talk with the board. A fantastic effort by two great athletes. On WCW Saturday Night, fans, make sure you join us next Saturday night. He'll be talking to the board. And what a while. Yes, go ahead. And I think, Nick, you did the only fair thing and just thing. How about that? Well, it's unusual to get compliments from Sir Robert. All right, so Ric Flair is still the world heavyweight champion. Commissioner Nick Bockwinkel will talk to the board this week, and we will have the results of that discussion this coming Saturday on WCW Saturday Night.
again, kind of slightly clumsy by Bachwinkle there. He doesn't fully seem to have it planned out what he's going to say. Yeah. But uh, still not as bad as Stargate 94, at least. No, that's true. Basically, it just boils down to it was Steamboat's job to get a clear victory. He didn't. So Flair retains. Yeah, it's just kind of funny because he keeps going back to, well, this is my decision, but I'll go to the board. Yeah, <laughs> that is true. Yeah. Thoughts on the match? Uh, it's a really good match. I mean, it's Flair and Steamboat, obviously. Right, yeah. <laughs> it's like we've talked before, you know, certain pairings like Flair and Sting, for instance. Something bad has to happen for a match between the two to go poorly. Right. Thankfully, in this case, we didn't have any of that. If anything, we got a little extra bits. For example, we don't have fully super heel Flair. He's slightly more face, but obviously, he, as he gets angrier, he gets a little more antagonistic. But mm-hmm. he's still most... Mostly a good guy here, and they give him the angle of, of obviously being a noise steamboat for the accidental contact. So it's different than previous ones where it'd always be full on, you know, wheel and deal in right. limousine ride and jet fly in Ric Flair against Sir Babyface wants to spend time with his family in, you know, Hawaii steamboat. Right. It feels a little bit like the uh, Sting versus Flair at Starcade 89. Oh, yeah. Though this one goes harsher, faster than that one. True. But it's a similar concept where it's like, Flair's not quite a full bad guy. Yeah. He's he's kind of the, probably a good guy, but he's still Ric Flair, so you kind of doubt him. Exactly. <laughs> the, the, the default Randy Orton face move, basically, yeah. Yeah. There's a nice dynamic here as well as Steamboat gets annoyed with Flair's antics. Mm-hmm. It's nice to see him sort of being able to turn with the match and go with the crowd and be a little more heelish. Yes. Even if he's never going to go full heel. and. Never would in his career, which is interesting. There's a depth to his character in this one that that is really interesting. Yeah, when he's in control, he can sort of deal with Flair shenanigans, but when he's not in control, they get more annoying because obviously they're keeping him from getting what he wants, which is the world title. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a rare match where Tony Schiavone can say, I think Steamboat might have been going for a chair, and I actually buy it. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not Heenan saying that, yeah. Yeah, he was selling the anger so much yeah. that I, I was like, you might be right. <laughs> yeah. Admittedly, if you did all of that, it wouldn't really seem like it wouldn't affect the match that much, given how Bachman could let the whole shenanigans with the international title go on without any <laughs> interruption. Fair, yes. And by the way, no board called for that one? Nope, nope. Okay. Maybe the international board gave him full control. Oh, okay. WCW International being a different company. Yeah. <laughs> Allegedly. WCB International being a uh, placard on a door that just leads to another one of his offices. <laughs> yes. Nick Bockwinkle is WCW International. We broke the code. I think we did. <laughs> Same as the name nobody cares at this point, but we did it. Hooray. Yes. But yeah, they work a really good match. I remember saying at the time, I thought they were going slow but steady early on. But again, they even said then... They never stopped with the character aspects. They never stopped with the action. They would just slow down and holds. Mm-hmm. But as you said, with Steamboat as well, over the course of the show covering him, he always keeps holds interesting, whether he's in them or he's applying them. Yes. You know, he'll change the grip a little bit, or he'll you know, let them sort of struggle a bit, or, you know, fight his way out of it. So the match was never boring. I was, I was worried about it because knowing the length of it, and even in being Flair and Steamboat, I was like, can they really fill all this time out with meaningful action? And I thought they did a pretty good job with that, all things considered, yeah. The slowest bit in it is when they're working that side headlock by Steamboat. Yeah. And even that, like you said, he keeps it interesting, he moves around, he grinds on it really heavily and makes clear his 
distaste for Ric Flair in that moment. He does a good job of taking, honestly, a fairly basic hold, but doing a lot with it. Exactly. And this is, again, this is on the same show where we had the Sting Rude match, where they had that somewhat internally long front face lock. So you have a good contrast mm-hmm. for how you can make these moves more interesting and holds more interesting. Yeah. While still giving an actual rest period and a prep period. Yeah. But yeah, I can't, don't really to me complaints. Um, it'd be nice to have an actual finish, but they're, I think they're trying to sort of build intrigue at a time where they know the company's going to change. I don't know if at this point Hogan's actually signed, but he's definitely going to sign if he hasn't properly signed behind the scenes yet. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to milk one last bit of sort of old-school NWA, JCP territory drama before basically they get all cartoony with masked people with batons and, you know, <laughs> yes. Dungeon of Doom and all that. <laughs> if you're going to give a swan song to the old WCW before things change, Flair Steamboat is not a bad way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> there is a reason that this feud is legendary. And while their 89 series is more often spoken of, this is an excellent contest as well that lives up to the legend. Yeah. It does, as we said, have some repetition in the middle with Steamboat working the headlock for quite a bit, but he does so aggressively, and they work around it expertly in a variety of ways, so it retains interest. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, a rapid and complex mat wrestling opening set the stage for an exceptional match with loads of great counters, excellent character work a complex and interesting crowd dynamic, and an ascending intensity that just built and built through the whole thing. Both men showed off their incredible stamina, and while you could see the wear the match had on them, they performed strongly all the way to the end. Like you, I, I didn't really like the ending. I thought this should have been a there-must-be-a-clear-winner-so-let's-continue-the-match kind of situation. Yeah. But the match to that point was brilliant, and this one's still a must-see. Yeah. I could definitely see them doing, like he said, there must be one thing, and then maybe have Flair do something especially heelish to mm-hmm. really enforce, yeah, no, he's Ric Flair, he's the heel, because we know he has to be mega heel Ric Flair for when Hogan shows up, brother. Yeah, you could use this to do the turn that is like, oh, no, we must continue, and then Flair just grabs a chair and just belts Steamboat or something. Yeah. Yeah, I, I could see if they wanted to, at this moment, take Ric Flair full heel, then that's what you do. Mm-hmm. But I think they kind of hold on with him a little bit longer. Yeah, because they have to match on the next show as well, where he's still sort of between being a full heel and being a face, yeah. Yeah. So Nick Pikewinkle did go to the board, and they determined that the match was a draw, and that the title was vacated. Oh. Which means there's a brief overlap period here, by the way, where the WCW title is vacated, and the WCW International title is also vacant. <laughs> I don't know if it's ever at the same time, but it's so close together, it's funny they went that way. You can't get either world title right, guys. Come on. Yeah, right? Admittedly, the international one was due to them having to rejigger the story with Rue, but yeah, it's just... It's a legit injury yeah. where this is a storyline thing, yeah. At this point, they're holding two Clash of Champions shows per year, and they just had one fairly recently. And the next one's going to be, I believe it's September, which is the second one of two they do every year. And obviously, they're not going to leave the world title vacating for that long. And there's no pay-per-view until Slamboree. So instead of leaving it vacant for that long, they decide, well, let's have a big blow-off for the final Ric flair Rickatima match on WCW Saturday night. That feels odd. Yeah, a bit. <laughs> Especially given we know of wrestling history, which is that Steamboat's injured before the end of this year, 
and doesn't wrestle again until I think it's 2008. Um, WWE comes back for those two matches. So this is not actually the final chapter of Steamboat Flare. It's actually on, again, WCW Saturday Night. And admittedly, this is a point where WCW Saturday Night is more major than it ends up. Yeah. Nitro has not yet come into play, so... To be fair, yeah. Contextually, it's not as bad as it sounds, but if you look back and like, yeah, the final Flare Steamboat match is that. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. It, it is surprising. Flair, of course, regains the title, and thus leads into the match he has at Slamboree against the mystery opponent. Which, of course, not mystery dust, because again, we've covered that show. Right, yes. But if you haven't watched that show or episode, it's mystery to you, because I'll leave it that way. <laughs> Tony talks up WCW Saturday Night, where they're going to have news of Bockwinkle's discussion with the board, as you noted. Mm-hmm. And Heenan interrupts him constantly to propose different scenarios, with Tony finally just sighing and glaring at him. <laughs> Heenan wants to know what's going to happen right now, and crumples Tony's notes and throws them away as Tony tries desperately not to laugh. <laughs> Tony repeatedly tries to wrap up the show as Heenan says Bockwinkle should just fire the board, make Heenan the board, and he'll handle it. <laughs> and Tony finally manages to wrap things up and promote Slamboree. And Spring Stampede 1994 is done. So, overall thoughts on Spring Stampede 1994? As a whole, it's a good show. Other than, for me, the Tiger Street fight, there's not really bad matches. Mm-hmm. There's matches that I like less than you for varying reasons and different degrees. But yeah, there's not like a real sore spot of, oh, make sure you skip this match if you're going to watch the show, et cetera, et cetera. So, certainly there's a nice variety here. Mm-hmm. You have sort of the shorter match with the DP Johnny B. Bad, the no, basically no story, but here's the, some action kind of match. Then you have the strong and technical match with the Pillman Regal match. You get what would later become the requisite hardcore match with the tag match there. You have, in theory, the big international attraction match, mm-hmm. which again, we vary our pins on that with Muda and Austin. You have the big title match, which because it's WCW, you have to involve some sort of shenanigans in, which definitely comes into play later in WCW. Yes. Well, again, well, I didn't like as much as you did. I thought the Broads Bunkhouse Buck match had a lot of merits and was an interesting sort of combination of the more prolonged match like Pillman Regal and the hardcore-ish kind of match mm-hmm. with Street Fight. So, again, there's not a one-to-one thing to some variety in the show, which is nice. Boss vs. Vader was a great big man match with had a lot more depth than you might expect in variety of offense. Mm-hmm. And any show with Flare Steamboat, unless somehow you made an all battleable show that ends in Flare Steamboat. Where Flare's also playing Black Scorpion. <laughs> yes, there you go. It's hard not to recommend a show with Flare Steamboat on it. Mm-hmm. So there we go. Consider, like, I don't know, this is close to a three hour show, probably. I can't remember the exact runtime. Assume it is. Even if literally everything else on the show had sucked, mm-hmm. Flair Steamboat would still be one-sixth of the show. Yeah. So. <laughs> That's true. Even if everything else had sucked, it would still be worth a look just for that. Yeah. But everything else did not suck. Mm-hmm. This was a terrific show. And honestly, I would actually say it's one of the best that I've watched for Let's Go to the Ring. Mm. At eight matches, every single one I thought was at least good with some truly great ones mixed in. Terrific character work up and down the card, a whole bunch of excellent and interesting angles with a ton of potential, an expert setup for the upcoming Slamboree. Now, sure, 
not everything may go to plan coming up, but that is not something to hold against this show. No, sure. What's more, the matches almost all got enough time to breathe and really develop into something interesting. They aren't just action. They really communicate their own story. Yeah. Each one feels unique, each one telling a story different from the others, with its own nature and feel. It's a really impressive accomplishment by WCW here, and it's rewarded by some amazing crowd reactions throughout the night. It's a really hot crowd for most of the show. The only notable mark against the matches is that there's some rather unsatisfying or awkward endings on this show Mm -hmm. in some otherwise brilliant matches. We have a time limit draw, an over-the-top rope DQ, a table spot that seems to go a bit off, a slightly awkward chair shot spot, and a somewhat confusingly handled double pin. Right. The matches remain good fun and don't lose much in those endings. It's just a bit of an odd theme to an otherwise excellent show. Yeah, it's a tricky thing not being viewed as a placeholder show, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of prolonging the story. So we'll watch the next show for the real conclusion and everything. Right, yeah. WCW pulled out a lot of stops in the presentation. Lots of pyro, cool entrances like Steamboat's Dragons, and a good emphasis of the show's theme in the various graphics. It really helped make the show stand out and give it a strong identity. Yeah. The production, unfortunately, was also where some missteps happened most notably during the Chicago street fight where the split-screen gimmick hurt a good brawl and the camera guys were frequently out of position. Yes. There were a few other glitches on the audio or video front at other points, but that was the biggest offender. For sure, yeah. Commentary was excellent. Yes. This is early in Tony and Heenan's time together, so they do seem to still be working out their act and let a few things by that in later appearances they'd jump right into. But even so, they have a great mix of good discussions and funny jokes that just works, and works well right from the get-go. As ever, I enjoyed listening to them, and it was clear that they were having fun playing off of each other. Silent third member Aaron Neville was an odd presence throughout the night, but he didn't manage to make even that funny. Yeah. It was just a brilliant show. Mm-hmm. I have no major complaints. It's an easy, easy show to watch, and an easy show to recommend. If you want to see WSW at its finest, this show is a great choice. No, yeah, absolutely. That's because it show as well that it's hard to predict based on like what year and like what placement a show is, it's going to get quality. Because mm-hmm. you can have Starcade, which is arguably the WrestleMania, and then you have some just some real stinkers, like the yeah. 991. Stargate 94. I mean, yeah. That, that one's an awful show. <laughs> yeah, I think that, got, that was rated the worst of all of us as a whole, if I remember correctly. It's definitely in contention for worst, if not the worst, of yeah. all, what, 18 shows, yeah. But yeah, then you have Spring Stampede with this random show in 1924 with a cowboy, you know, western theme in Chicago of all places. And yeah, quality as a whole is really, really strong. Yeah, exactly. I would never have predicted coming into this that this would be an excellent show, but it, it was. Yeah, it's very enjoyable. All right. It's time for our match of the night and MVP. So, Al, your match of the night. So, as I said many times, it's good to have a show where it's hard to pick a match of the night because there's a lot of strong matches. Yes. For me, I think it comes down to picking between basically the last two matches. Mm-hmm. Boss Vader was a really good match, which had, the for me, the right amount of like surprise spots, sort of innovation in this kind of big man match, and just the sort of level of two big guys just literally throwing themselves at each other and slamming each other around checked all the boxes for me. Likewise, Flair Steamboat is, you know, Flair Steamboat. 
<laughs> yes. It's, again, hard to go wrong with their Steamboat. They get extra edge from me for really adding extra nuance here by having Steamboat not turn heel, but definitely turn edgier, sort of coming full 90s Steamboat, as opposed to being really, really talented Steamboat that sometimes feels like a person out of place in what's getting into the edgier 1990s. Mm-hmm. At his worst, you can feel like he's a full-on 80s wrestling character, you know, the serious grappler guy who just doesn't adapt to anything. But thankfully, in here, you get to see that's not true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a toss-up for me in a lot of ways, but I think for surprising me a lot and giving me everything I wanted, I really have to go with Boss versus Vader. Okay. Yeah. That was a great big man match. Like you said, it, it has some surprising things that takes it beyond the normal big man match. Exactly. Well, I will go with your other choice. Okay. I'm going with Flair versus Steamboat. There were a ton of good matches on this show. In fact, every single match for me was either good or great. But Flair versus Steamboat is above the rest of them easily. Sure. It's so good. It has so much story, so much emotion, so much intensity. And it piles it all on top of a great match that, though long, keeps a good pace and tells a complex and involving story. What clinches it for me is what you pointed out, actually, in, in your statements. They did more. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they took a Flair versus Steamboat match, which you could have just done. They could have literally just done a Flair versus Steamboat match, but they intentionally evolved the characters. Yeah. The fact that they're taking what's already one of the greatest matches of all time, I think, and pushing it a step further in their characterization, I think, for me, made that definitely the match of the night. Yeah, I would not dispute that, because it's a toss-up for me picking the two, two, but yeah. Yeah. I'll agree with you then. MVP? This is a tricky one for me. I could be really predictable and favor the fact that I really liked his match, and in fact, he actually got to hit his moonsault that I picked Vader, but I like to sort of spread things around unless it's super, super obvious and there's no other picks. So I think between watching the match and you sort of your summary really sort of selling it for me, I think I have to give it to Steamboat. Okay. Just because, obviously, his match is really good, he's pretty flawless his execution, honestly, which should be enough, but then, as we said, he evolves his character a bit. He gets a little angrier, and you see an edge to him that normally gets, so take something you don't need to improve, and then still doing it anyways, for me, that gets an extra edge. All right. Again, there's a ton of excellent performances tonight, but I'm going to agree with you for a brilliant, emotional performance with incredible subtleties in a lengthy match. I'm giving it to Ricky Steamboat as well. Nice. He's always great, but tonight he was just at the top of his game and going beyond what he normally does. It's it, it's amazing to say that about someone as good as Steamboat. Yeah. Also, I do have to give some kudos to the commentary team. Oh, yeah. They're really helping to draw out the subtle elements of his character that he was presenting. They did a great job for most of the night, but especially during his match. I definitely considered giving MVP to Heenan for, mm-hmm. well, for me the second time. But yeah, the team of performance is so good. Yeah, it has to be yeah. given accolades. Yeah, I do want to just note a runner-up for me was uh, actually Steven Regal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For having a great performance in his match, but also just for that that look of sheer terror on his face when, when he's holding Rick Rude back from fighting Vader. Yeah. That was a scene-stealing moment. It was, was, was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of funny, too, because... Regal, when Regal leaves WCW, he goes to the WWF and is branded the real man's man. True. It's funny, you get, you get a hint of that, because him seeing him in blue jeans outside of wearing his cape. 
If he, if he's wearing them, are they called blue blood jeans? Oh, uh, yeah, I'll give you that one. Or I guess they would be if Vader got through with them. <laughs> yes, for Steph, definitely <laughs> then, yeah. And that wraps up our review of Spring Stampede 1994. If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Links will be available in the episode description. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details, and share your own thoughts about each show as we go through. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn, Verbal, or Audible. And please, if you've enjoyed this show, give us a rating or review and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us. Many thanks to OSW Review for attendance at pay-per-view figures and to Gina Trujillo for our logo. Next up, Spring Stampede 1997? Wait, what now? (laughs) Yes, we go straight from 1994 straight to 1997. We are not skipping shows. Nope. WCW just didn't do a Spring Stampede in 1995 or 1996. Yeah. The title of the show, by the way, is These Men Do Solemnly Swear to Kick, Fight, Punch, Stomp, and Flatten Anybody Who Gets in Their Way. The series has some lengthy taglines. Yeah, it's getting getting, uh, anime-esque, yeah. (laughs) There we go. This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen, signing off. Good night, everybody. Happy rest. Buck reads Buck beats ha. Buck beats Rhoda. Jeez.